You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Black Christmas. There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. A high school girl's been murdered. Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other girls are getting obscene phone calls. Hello? What do you want? What are you doing? Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Jolet, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Always a pleasure. Also back in the booth is Mr. Mark Begley. Ho, 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 shit. It's the reason for the season as we talk about Bob Clark's 1974 film Black Christmas. It's the story of a sorority house in um, the United States where a killer has snuck into the attic and slowly picks off several of the sisters in between harassing them with wild phone calls. We will be spoiling the film as we go along. So if you haven't seen Black Christmas, please watch it and come back. We will still be here. So, Maitland, when was the first time you saw Black Christmas and what did you think? You know, I don't remember exactly when I saw Black Christmas, although I know that I did not see it in a theater. So that means it was either video or DVD. All I remember is thinking, well, goddamn, that's a Christmas movie for me. Because honestly, I'm not a huge Christmas fan. I don't hate Christmas. I'm not the total Grinch. But there is something about the forced gaiety of Christmas And the length of time that that forced gaiety exists, I mean, it starts right after Thanksgiving, and it just does not stop, has always rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. I love your Christmas trees. I have some nice Christmas decorations that I like to bring out. I enjoy seeing my family and friends, but the relentless ho, 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 tis the season to be jolly, wears on me a little bit. And Mark, how about yourself? I 
finally got to see this sometime early 2016 because I broke down and bought the Blu-ray, bought a Blu-ray the day after Christmas in 2015. And I bought the Blu-ray because I was having trouble finding it streaming anywhere at that time and had been looking for it on streaming for a good two or three years once I had gotten back into diving into horror and trying to see a lot of things that I had never seen. And as I've mentioned on the other Bob Clark, Alan Ormsby episodes, it was one of those movies. It's not on my psychotronic encyclopedia list, but I became aware of it around the same time as those and searched for it along with those. Couldn't find it back then. Figured these days I'd have much more luck. I had a handful of streaming services at that time, and it would just never come around. And I thought, okay, I, I need to see this one. I had seen Death Dream a little while before, and probably Deranged or Children, one of the two. And so I ordered it, must have watched it fairly quickly after I got it, and was a like Death Dream underwhelmed by the film. And again, it's not a fault of the film. It was just different than what I expected, even though I had read about it for years and I, you know, I had all these glorious write-ups for it. And it's, you know, everybody would say, oh, Halloween is the first slasher. Oh, but actually there's Black Christmas. And being a huge fan of Halloween, being a fan of Clark's other films, including A Christmas Story, I thought it would hit me it had more of an impact than it did, but I kept returning to it and returning to it and was like, oh, okay, I get it now. This is a me problem. I'm, I'm catching on here a little bit. The pace is a little more languid than modern slashers or, well, what I call modern, you know, 80s slashers or even modern remakes of those slashers. And, okay, I can appreciate this for what it is and have to say it's probably within one of my top 10 horror films. This was a first time watch for me. I had never seen black Christmas in any of its forms. I remember a few years ago when the 2019 version came out, people were kind of tripping all over themselves on Twitter to talk about how great or awful it was. I don't really remember when the 2006 movie came out, which is interesting because I think that was right around the time that there were a lot of horror remakes that were going on, like what my bloody Valentine or prom night. Uh, I, I did go see Texas chainsaw remake. I even saw that horrible nightmare in Elm street remake, but did not see black Christmas. And then kind of to your point when I was watching it the, for the first time, and I've seen it several times since for the show, I was, yeah, kind of also underwhelmed. And then it really took a minute for me to realize, oh, this was 1974. This is way earlier than other things. Like when, and I'm glad I said spoilers, when they say, oh, the call's coming from inside the house. I'm like, okay, well, I've heard that line before. Jill, this is Sergeant Sacker. Listen to me. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. But this was one of the first times the call was coming from inside the house. I'm like, oh, Okay, now I realize why this movie is so groundbreaking. Now I realize when we're seeing POV shots from the killer, when we're getting these killings in this sorority house. And then I'm thinking even more as far as, well, I really 
kind of like this too, that we don't ever see the killer, that we don't really get his backstory. And then you watch, and I know we'll talk more about the remakes later, but you watch the 2006 version and it's that same Rob Zombie Halloween problem where it's like, hey, here's everything about the killer that you ever wanted to know. Here's their entire childhood. No, I don't need to know that much. And thank you for not telling me. Thank you for making Billy the killer be completely a cipher and that you never really get his entire backstory. You can try to piece things together, but he's just basically a malevolent force living up in the attic. And I'm like, okay, I'm here for it. I like this. The thing that made Black Christmas stick in my head was that it was something I I must have seen very early in the period of my life when I really discovered that I absolutely loved horror movies, that I loved everything about slasher movies, jolly, old school horror films. You know, I had always liked them. I liked them as a kid, although what I liked was limited to what you could see on television when I was a kid. And I was a kid in the 60s and, and early 70s. So that was not the kind of thing you can see on television now. But those were movies that always stuck in my head and formed, I guess, my psychic landscape. And Black Christmas played into both that and the fact that, to be absolutely honest, I'm not a huge fan of Christmas. Christmas in my family was always fraught in one way or another, mostly in ways when you're a kid and it's most part of your life, you don't even know how to put your finger on what it is that's troubling you about it. But there was a lot of family conflict and a lot of things that were went unsaid. And Black Christmas clearly tapped into that for me. It tapped into all those anxieties about holidays that you're supposed to love, that are supposed to be a time when everybody's united in enjoying this holiday. And yet there's a whole bunch of stuff that a lot of people aren't enjoying, that makes them anxious, that puts them on edge that makes them wish that this holiday were over so we could get back to normal life. And I think that that's the root of why Black Christmas really spoke to me in a very powerful way. And even looking at it now, when I have all kinds of knowledge that I didn't have then, it strikes a real note for me. Well, and you get that a lot from the characters. And we don't have a huge group of characters, but they're all experiencing problems during this time. We have... Claire, who is dispatched first and doesn't have much screen time, but she's concerned about introducing her boyfriend to her family. And we understand why that is once we're introduced to her father. And then Barb is abandoned by her mom, and they obviously have a strained relationship. And we get all these nuggets of their background so quickly in the film. And I think that's stuff I didn't catch First, and like these characters are so well rounded with just the minimal amount of effort from the script to the direction to the acting. It's it's there, but you have to be thinking about it. And of course, Jess with her unwanted pregnancy. And this is all going around when you know it's Christmas break and we're gonna go skiing and we're supposed to visit our families and be having fun. And really none of these girls are having fun right now, except maybe Phil. Right. The Andrea Martin character. And I was so glad to see Andrea Martin show up in this because I was, I was a huge fan of SCTV when I was growing up. So to see her in any sort of other role, I was very happy and that she's pretty serious and pretty 
down to earth quite a bit in here. It feels like she's the only one who really kind of has her shit together. She seems like the intuitive one. She's picking up on what's going on with all the other girls and is finally the one that says and breaks down and says, oh, you know, I think that Claire is dead and how sorry she feels for her father. And that struck me these few times I watched it this week with having that father figure there the whole time. His main concern is his daughter drinking and palling around with boys. And it's just so much worse than that. It's every parent's worst nightmare. And when when I start thinking about that, the reality of what that situation would be, it's just kind of heartbreaking. One of the things that's nice about seeing Andrea Martin in this film is that often when you see people who became well-known for something else, it's really hard to divorce them from it. And yet she is completely and utterly invested in this film. You completely buy her as a character. You never think of her as, oh, right, SCTV. She is just the person she is. And as you said, very grounded and very empathetic and sympathetic. She's a really, really great character who is never overplayed, never takes you out of the story. She's just somebody that you really, you would have liked to have known her had you been in that house with those girls at that time or in any similar situation in your life. And to your point, Mark, I never got until maybe the third or fourth time that I watched the film, I never heard Margot Kidder talking to her mother. Like I knew that she was talking to her mom, but I always missed that line about something like gold plated whore or something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you're a real gold plated whore. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, okay. Like it, it took me a while before I, I ever caught that. I'm like, Oh, all right. Cause I didn't realize that there was tension at home. And that's why she is probably the way that she is because Marco Kidder is playing basically the bad girl. She swears, she drinks, and she has every reason to and every right to as well. But it was just amazing to realize, oh, okay, there's problems here. I went away to school when it comes to college and stuff. And there was always that weird time around Christmas or around Thanksgiving. Who's going to go home? You know, I had people uh, living with us that were uh, from out of state. And so when Thanksgiving comes around, it's like, okay, you guys just sticking around or your folks coming up or you going to Chicago or wherever you're from. And then around Christmas, it was always that who's going to be the last person in the house. And for whatever reason, I usually was. So I kind of liked having the entire house to myself. Luckily, we didn't have any serial killers in the attic that I know of. You know, it's funny. One of the things to me that was exotic about this movie is I was born and raised in New York City. When I, when I went to college as an undergraduate, I was living with my parents for the first couple of years. And then I moved in with a friend of mine in a loft down on 20th Street. And there were a bunch of us living there. So I was never isolated from the, from the place I was from, even when I was not living at home. I was still living in the city in which I was raised. So that entire idea of going away, not only going away to college, but living in a sorority house or a fraternity house or in some other kind of on-campus housing was completely alien to me. And it was fascinating to me in this movie. I I looked at this movie and other movies, obviously, that I saw at the same time that took place in milieus like that that weren't horror films and felt as though, wow, this is completely 
a fascinating situation for me that, oh my God, all these girls and their house mother with her little, you know, liquor in her book and <laughs> all of these little eccentricities, you see, I could hardly imagine what it would be like to be in that situation, period, let alone in that situation when lots of people have gone away for the holidays already and there is something very, very scary going on, namely that there's a killer in your house who's targeting you and your friends. And they set that up really well in the film where it works as a plot point where you don't know who is supposed to be there or not. It's, again, a credit to to Clark and to Roy Moore with the original script, but that idea of, okay, we're tipped off to Claire not being where she's supposed to be because of her dad. If her dad hadn't been the one to come and pick her up, if she was going to leave like Mrs. Mack does, they would have had no reason to realize that she hadn't left. But with the Mrs. Mack thing, we get that simple line as Phil and Jess and Chris, the boyfriend, are going to go to the search party. She says, I may not be back when you get home. And it's like, okay, easy. And that it's a simple thing, and it's done in movies before, but it just works so perfectly in this. And when they get back, they just assume that she's caught that taxi and and left to her sisters. And they're under that impression the whole way through the film. I really thought that I was going to dislike the Mrs. Mac character, because at first when she comes in, she just comes in. Like, hey, I am channeling Shelly Winters, and I'm going to be super loud and obnoxious. And then you kind of get to know her. And even though, yeah, she's a raging alcoholic, she still really cares about the girls that she's watching over. And I I kind of fell in love with the character. I really like her. And then especially I like that awkward moment where, where she's calling for her cat, calling for Claude, and starts – calling Claude a bunch of names, which you do when you are calling for your cat and your cat's not coming only to have Mr. Harrison behind the door or whatever, like basically catch her when she's calling Claude a little prick. It's like, Oh, okay. That was a good moment. And I, and I like that there are all of these laugh moments in this film and it really keeps you off balance as far as, is this going to be a funny scene or is this going to be a horror scene? And of course we know that th- the two, you know, the scream and the laughter are very closely related, but this movie does a great job to keep you off your feet, especially at the beginning. And not to focus on a detail, but yes, I absolutely have to say that the Claude moments are so dear to my heart because I have two cats and I can't tell you how often I have called one or the other of them, you little fuck. And that to me is such a human moment in this movie. I can completely identify with it. You love your cat but you really want to smack your cat and say, Jesus fucking Christ, why are you doing that? We just got a new kitten a couple of weeks ago, so I'm really feeling that right now. Yeah, you little fuck is part of every cat owner's, every cat companion's vocabulary. You were talking about Phil and Jess, and I'm just like, oh, there's there's a lot of male names for female characters in here. I think they play that up in the 2019 version a lot more. But it's always interesting to me when you have these kind of, you know, generic names that could be male or female, um, even to the Art Hindle character of Chris. It's like, oh, okay. So you never know when you're talking about these characters. Uh, I'm almost tempted to call them by the actor or actress's name just because it's tough keeping the gender straight sometimes. Yeah, they really play that up in the most recent remake. All the, the four leads have unisex names. And and I guess that that 
goes to this too. And I always, I, I, when I first saw the movie, I was so confused by the name Phil and it was short for Phyllis, duh, but I didn't catch I'm like, why are they calling her Phil? But they, the characters in this are just so, I keep going back to that because every time I watch it, I pick up on something else. And Mikey mentioned that phone call and I had to watch with subtitles because more, more for the phone calls themselves, because I was trying to parse out some of, of what the caller was saying in them. And that phone call scene between Barb and her mom is a little bit, there's a lot of stuff going on and we're hearing it even when we're not on her, the camera's not on her. So it's easy to miss a lot of that stuff. But again, this is one of those films where, I think the filmmaker really gave his audience credit and didn't dumb everything down for, you know, the, the matinee crowd or whatever, the everyday film goer. It's like, yeah, you might have to watch this a couple of times to catch everything. I know I certainly did and probably missed that whole thing at the beginning. I feel like at the beginning, I'm not sure exactly when it happens, but it's early on and Jess and Phil are kind of close to each other and they both look very concerned. And I, there's no real indication of it, but I feel like this is Jess telling Phil I'm pregnant and really there's no context to that other than they seem concerned and there's nothing going on at that moment that is concerning. I don't know how, Early Jess knows if she knows before the movie proper has started or if this is all news to her that day. And maybe that's why she's coming in to the sorority house and to the party late uh, at the opening of the film. But just, yeah, their interactions, uh, it's just kind of one of those lightning in a bottle things where they got the right people for these parts. And you can not pay attention to any of the character dynamics and still have a great horror film. Or if you watch it multiple times and you start picking up on that, just think, wow, this is, you know, Barb is masking all these feelings of inferiority by being that quote unquote bad girl and raising hackles by telling off color stories or, you know, or just ignore all that. And, and, and think that she's just the jokey character, like as well as Mrs. Mack. So what you're saying about Barb in particular is absolutely true. And it's also something that I think you see in horror films of this particular time that you don't see even five or six years later, which is that because these movies were still very much underrated, nobody really cared about them. Nobody was talking in any serious way about, well, what these stalk and slash movies were about, other than there are movies for people who just want to see a lot of people get killed, in, a lot of girls particularly, killed in a gory way on screen. I think they were afforded a freedom to play with characters, to play with subtext, and to talk about particularly things involving women, the way in which women are affected by being vulnerable, uh, the way in which women are targets, the way in which women are frightened of things that men aren't frightened of. You know, if you put five guys alone in a, in, a, in a fraternity house, the dynamic probably isn't going to include we're scared when we hear that noise outside the door. We're alarmed when we see that shadow outside the window because they're guys. They don't have specifically that fear of sexual violence or that fear of just being targeted by a masculine hostility 
against women. And I, I don't want to turn this all into a discussion about uh, misogyny, but misogyny is something that looms large in horror movies generally. In a movie like Black Christmas, which on its surface looks as though it might be a misogynistic movie about a bunch of women, pretty young girls, in an isolated place being victimized, actually isn't. It, in a lot of ways, is a discussion about that fear of violence and how individual women in this context react to it. There's Billy, the killer that's in the house. Oh, Billy. But I don't think that Billy is involved with the killing of the little girl. So I think that there's that external threat of violence as well, because that's another plot point that we have going on is that there was a little girl murdered in the neighborhood. Now, I could be wrong. He could have murdered her on the way to the sorority house, but it feels like that might be a whole separate case unto itself, which is just another, yes, violence happens against women, be they Mrs. Max age or all the way down to a little girl who is going to school. I'm completely with you on that. And that is something I hadn't thought about until I watched this movie in preparation for this dis discussion. I had completely forgotten that little girl who was killed in the park. And I'd also, frankly, forgotten Mrs. Mack. The fact that this violence against women completely covers the age spectrum. The little girl, it's an older woman who is a matronly figure and is not particularly sexualized. And it's all these pretty girls living in the sorority house. It is very striking. And not only do you have to worry about violence coming from outside, from these unknown forces, but that they use Peter, the care delay character, as this red herring throughout it. I mean, he gets unusually angry, especially when he starts smashing the piano. Oh, I'll never get it. Never. Oh, I mean, I know he's got a lot of pressure from the conservatory that he's enrolled in, but then he now has the quote-unquote pressure of Jess wanting to abort their baby, and he seems like a loose cannon. I mean, there's a reason why he's a great red herring, because you don't know where he's coming from. And Care Delay, he's got that calm demeanor, so when he starts being threatening when he is calling her crying and all these things, or there's a reason why he makes this perfect red herring because you don't know where this guy's coming from. There is a moment where it's like, is he going to possibly hit Jess? Is he that upset that he's going to smack her around? Is he that much of a loose cannon? Is he that much of a loose cannon that he could be murdering all the girls in the house? Possibly. He obviously isn't at the end of the movie or even throughout the movie. It just doesn't add up. But there's a good reason why they put him in that position. I also like the fact that it's Kier Delay, who is incredibly pretty. And that just plays into that gender role thing that's going on throughout this film. He's not the big butch boyfriend. He's not the football team boyfriend who's upset about this. He's not androgynous, I would say, but he is definitely not your big, tough boyfriend. And yet his hypersensitivity about this whole issue of pregnancy and whose agency counts for more in this situation is made kind of ambiguous by the fact that he is as pretty as he is. And he has the 70s long hair and a very slight bill. He's tall, but he has a very slight frame. Back to that murder of the, of the young girl in the park, it took me a long time to kind of match up the timeline there 
as to when things happen. And the killer gets into the house that first night. And I could never remember when that mom is at the police station, what the timeline was for her. It's the next day. And, and the girl goes missing that day. And that always kind of makes me think, yeah, it's probably not him. It's very possible that he could sneak out of the house, but it's daylight at this point. So I don't know. I I like the idea that, yeah, this is not him. And to your point, Mike, there's violence all around. And we were just starting to get into that in that time period of the early to mid 70s. There were serial killers active. We may not have had a name for it, or it may not have been widely reported like it is today, or even just a few years later with Ted Bundy, who would kind of play a factor in the airing of this film at one point. But it's scarier to me, and I kind of like that idea of having it be a little bit scarier, that it's completely somebody else. That also made me think, when they get that first phone call from Billy, or the first phone call in the film proper, and Jess says, it's him again, the moaner. And I'm like, well, is it the same guy that's been calling before? It may or may not be. There's no real way to know from the context of the film. But I kind of like to think, no, they've just been getting obscene phone calls because that was definitely a thing in the 70s. I received obscene phone calls in the 70s. <laughs> uh, a lot of people mistook me for my mom when I answered the phone. So I think they thought they were talking to a girl and I would just hang up. but. That was a thing. A lot of people got their kicks that way in the 70s. So. They were talking to your mom yet. That's really off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it's I, I kind of like to think these are all separate events. And that's just another, whether it was intended or not, it's another angle that makes me appreciate the script and the the, the film itself so much more. This film does capture something that was very much of the 70s, which is that there was a shaking up of gender and sexual norms that made a lot of people very uncomfortable. And it fueled a lot of anger on a lot of fronts. It made a lot of men angry that women were not asking for rights, but taking those rights and assuming that they deserved them, they had every right to them. There were also a lot of women who resented the idea that the roles that they had grown up with were suddenly not acceptable. There was a very serious anti-feminist backlash at that time. All of that was very much in the air. And there was also a lot of gay liberation stuff going on at the time. So there was a lot of challenging of traditional social and sexual norms that made a lot of people uneasy. And I think that you can feel that in this film. I don't know how deliberate it was, but it very much reflects the time in which this film was made. These uppity broads are going to college and think that they can get some sort of education and a job afterwards when they should be at home cooking and cleaning and taking care of babies. I mean, that just shows it right there that they're all out to get men because they're all going to this college. They're all selfish bitches, Mike. And this is one year past Roe v. Wade. And I'm not sure what the situation was like in Canada, though this is supposed to be set in the United States. I would like to think that Canada is much better when it comes to women's rights. I would really hope so, because I don't think you can get much worse than the U.S. at this point, or even at this point in 2021 as we're recording this. But 
there's definitely something there that these are college girls and yeah, this does play. This is like closer to Bundy than to DeSalvo and way closer to Bundy than Richard Ramirez. But just this whole idea of having sororities or groups of students or nurses being terrorized by serial killers. It's an awful thing. And it was too frequent of a thing that I could name three people that terrorized young women students. It's three too many. The agency that Jess is given in this film, it's I'm hard pressed to think of another film, especially of that time. And, and even more so in the eighties films where she is allowed that throughout and doesn't kowtow at any point. And it's just always about her plans that she had that they talked about in that scene where they're talking in, in the sort of house by the Christmas tree. And she said, remember those plans? I still have those plans. Yours may have changed because you think you did bad at your recital, but mine haven't. And she never says, oh, well, we'll, we'll keep talking about it or yeah, I'll think about it when he leaves in a huff. She is still determined to terminate her pregnancy. And there's not a moment in the film where she reverses that. And I really appreciate that. I tweeted, and I think you saw it, Mike, yesterday that when I was watching it with my daughter and she's kind of half paying attention to the film and playing a game on her computer and I was curious to see what her reaction would be during that scene in the recital hall. And Peter says something to the effect of Jess, I want us to have the baby. And my daughter just chimed in. It's not your decision though. And I was like, I just, just sat there and didn't say anything and was like, gave her my thumbs up, you know, <laughs> you're raising her right Mark. Yeah. I don't know. She's, she's picking it up somehow. You said especially at this time, but also especially in this genre, because horror films are not, and especially stock and slash movies, are not known for empowering their female characters. And yet in Black Christmas, these female characters really are very much in charge of themselves. They're very together. They're not like the kind of silly girls that you see in a lot of later horror movies of this kind whom you look at, or I look at, I should say, to own it, and say, ah, God Almighty, you're so effing stupid. I really don't care if the secret stalker, whoever he is, picks you off. All the young women in this movie are very together. Sure, they have their problems. Sure, they have the stuff that they're dealing with. But they're not silly. They're not vapid. That's the thing that I think struck me most. They're fully realized characters. They have ideas. They have things they want to do. They have things they're dealing with. They have friendships. They have relationships. They are very much young women who have everything ahead of them and who, who are shaping their own futures in a very real way. And you see this sketched very quickly in this movie. I mean, it doesn't have a lot of time to waste on telling you who these girls are, what they want to do, what their futures might hold, because this is a horror movie. We have to get to some stalking and slashing. But unlike a lot of lesser movies of this kind, you really do know who all these characters are. And you really don't want awful things to happen to them because they don't deserve it. They're not dumb girls. 
They're not silly twits. Yeah, you genuinely care for these people five minutes after you meet them. And I think Clark is very smart to have the murder of Claire so early and so brutally and be the icon for the film. But then also, you know, he spaces out the killing. So it's always a threat there, but then to even turn up the heat a little bit more with the phone calls. So you don't necessarily need to see as many murders as long as there are the phone calls. And I like how the phone calls start to increase as the movie goes on. He knows pacing so well and knows when to inject those phone calls and just really ratchet it up. And you don't get five phone calls in the first 20 minutes. No, they're spaced out throughout. And then they just get wilder and wilder and all of the different voices that Billy is doing. And sometimes uh, it never really makes a whole lot of sense. But then you get that moment where he starts to repeat things that Peter had said. So you're really, you know, Jess is very much questioning that. Like, is this Peter or and she doesn't really make that connection is this someone who heard my conversation? Knowing a little bit about some of the spoilers of the film before I watched it, I didn't really pay attention to Peter so much because I knew that he wasn't going to be the killer. So you you do miss some of that bait with the red herring if you're like me and go into the film that way. Then I think, well, this is kind of a cheat that lasts all the way to the penultimate scene of the film where Jess has ended up killing Peter. And you're still thinking, oh, well, it was probably him. He was in the house that one time during a phone call. We know that the phone calls are coming from in the house, although we don't really see him make a phone call until after that. But again, if you've read about it, you know that that's one of the lines that's always used in reviews. The callers are, the calls are coming from in the house. I try to remember, you know, that this is, we are set up to believe it's Peter and that Clark's intent was to have us question whether it was Peter. And then you start thinking, well, does, can this work out? Can he be in the house and be here? And he mentions in, I think the audio commentary, it was important for him not to show Peter when he does call. Because there are multiple calls from other people as well that every time the phone rings, you're like, oh, am I going to hear this creep again? And it's Peter or it's Barb, Barb's mom or whoever all the cops start calling as well. And But he didn't show Peter at his location like we so often do in films. And then you're going, oh, well, where is – I still at this point, if you're watching the movie for the first time, maybe don't realize the calls are coming from the house but to not show him where he is, is smart, because then you can think, at at least at that point when he comes down the steps after a call, oh, maybe it was him. That whole thing with the phone, not to get into the sequels too much, but I kind of like how they broach that with the current technology. Because you think about something like that, how would you do that today when we're not stuck on landlines or possibly having a house that has two lines or maybe three, because that's kind of a confusing point for me. When we do finally see Billy or the caller make a call, he is in Mrs. Mack's room, but he couldn't have been making the calls from her room the whole time. They would have heard. I mean, he's so manic and so loud and so weird. You would think that somebody would hear 
that coming from her room. And he also risks her going to her room until she is dispatched. But I don't like kind of trying to break down things like that. Oh, does this make sense? Could he have been the killer? Could he not have been? It would have been nice maybe for a definitive, oh, he was here at this time. It could not have been him. You never really get that moment because you see him lurking around the house. He's, you know, disembodied voice on the phone, so on and so on. But I love that at the end, the cops think the the crime is solved. Oh, well, Peter's dead. Okay, I guess everything's fine. And then everybody leaves. And then the phone starts to ring again. I mean, that's one of the best endings. It is so great when the phone starts to ring one more time. This is going to keep going forever. I'd love it. As far as the logic goes, I was like, well, how does he know the phone number of the phone downstairs or what the line is? And I was just like, yeah, forget it. Don't try to read into that stuff because it's just going to fall apart. But who cares? It works. It really works. But, you know, interestingly, when we talk about the logic and the mechanics of things, I love how much time and I had completely forgotten this until I watched it again. This film dedicates to the police trying to trace those calls and those amazing shots showing you what it took to trace a call back in the 70s. Those enormous shots in those trunk line warehouses or whatever those things are. I wonder whether people who are in their 20s and 30s looking at those shots even know what the hell is going on there. Plus, you get Les Carlson. So as our lineman, Bill Graham, who I just love. And yeah, I think that's one of the things that I really enjoyed from the get-go of seeing this. Oh, there's Les. And oh, we get to see him run around and do this fun stuff. It's not like what we get in uh, When a Stranger Calls, where it's just all in the house and the police and, and the tracing is all done, you know, completely separate. I mean, it's basically the same story taken from the same urban legend. But I love seeing the mechanics of things like that happen and it's a great point to that you bring up about the police and how different that is from so many horror movies where they're not just completely dismissive. And we get that with the Nash character, the bumbling idiot who gets the fellatio lines thrown at him and all this other stuff and doesn't make the connection that we've got this girl missing from the sorority where these calls are happening. We've had a girl murdered in the park. Come on, buddy, let's take this seriously. And Lieutenant Fuller does. And it's such a great perform. One of my favorite performances from John Saxon, because he is so low key and so genuine and seems legitimately concerned and caring about what's happening to these girls. And you don't often get that. He does ask the probing questions about Claire, like, was she seeing other people? Could she be shacking up somewhere? Does she have emotional problems? Which cops are going to ask. I think that's part of their duty as well. But he's he's serious about taking this seriously. And his only real goof is dismissing the fact that there is a second line in the house. No, I completely agree. And I love John Saxon in this movie. John Saxon is one of those actors, frankly, he's done some really great stuff. He's done some very bad stuff. And he's done a lot of stuff in the middle. But I think this is a movie in which he acquits himself really, really well. 
he is a voice of reason. He is the guy in a position of authority who, in a lot of horror films, is the guy who says, oh, man, those kids, they're just fooling around. Who cares? This is nothing. He's the, he's the voice of authority who says, we need to look into this. We need to investigate. I don't know what's going on, but we can't dismiss it out of hand. And he does it in a really low key and really effective way. You know, I look at him here and I look at him in Tenebrae, frankly. And this is a really wonderful moment for John Saxon in his career, where he really does acquit himself extremely well in a genre film. And I like, too, that he listens to the phone call between Jess and Peter, and then it doesn't feel like there's judgment in his voice afterwards. It feels like he's genuinely concerned about her more than, oh, well, young lady, you really need to uh, make your boyfriend happy kind of thing. There's just none of that, that he is genuinely He's kind of the, even though we do have an, a literal father figure in the film, he's the closest to a real father figure that we have throughout the movie, that he is so caring and protective. For me, that also plays into all of those scenes in which you see the police really trying with all the technology that they have at their command at this time in history, really, really working to figure out what is going on. There is none of that dismissiveness that you see in a lot of horror films where the cops just say, oh, man, it's those crazy kids. Oh, man, it's those girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're always complaining about something. That's always so frustrating in films. I just find another way around it, and they do it so well in this. Well, even though you have Sergeant Nash, who's kind of a nincompoop, which is fucking hilarious, and especially when the one cop is laughing at him. I absolutely love that. That guy's great. These cops are actually effective that they find the little girl's body, that they can have a search party and you don't get shots of, I don't know, a couple of yahoos with shotguns that accidentally shoot each other or something, (laughs) some sort of comic relief part in that. I mean, it's a very serious scene and they pull it off very seriously in that they actually find the little girl's body and the screams in that scene are some of the best screams in the film because they feel very genuine. It feels like this is what you would do if you came across a girl's mutilated body in the park. Yeah. And the intercutting of those scenes, that in particular is great. And it happens a lot throughout the film where we switch locations and the cuts and the the sound design are so great. And I think we go from up in the attic, either right around the time Mrs. Mack is getting murdered. And then we get screams and it's the girls in the park discovering the body. And then the mom comes up after Mr. Harrison, who is of course falsely relieved that it's not Claire and the mom comes up and she opens her mouth to scream and then the phone rings. So it's the phone ring versus her, you know, instead of her screaming. And he does that a number of times. And having watched this after watching those other three, Bob Clark and or Alan Ormsby films, you can just see the progression of his technique and style and grasp of the language of film so much more in this. And this is, again, right around the same time as, as Death Dream and Deranged, only a couple of years after Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. And, I mean, really right on the heels of at least the release of, of Death Dream that had been filmed a little bit before, but we get a lot of moving, roving camera 
just in that little staircase landing even. And it becomes a little disorienting after a while. Like I'm trying to figure out the the layout of this space and he'll do a, a 180 or a 360 around that landing up to show the attic door again. And you're like, wow, you know, this is, it's great. There's some split diopter shots in there. And uh, it just seems like his style and technique was really ratcheting up at this point. I listened to the audio commentary, the one with, well, I listened to both commentaries, but there's one that has Clark and then there's one that has Saxon and Delay that are kind of cut together, obviously two different uh, interviews or two different sessions. And when they aren't talking, you can hear the audio of the movie and listening to it. And I know I said the exact same thing when I talked about um, Lady from Shanghai. It sounds like a radio drama. You know, the, the music, the sound effects, the dialogue, it is all so rich and so layered. And I love with this one, too. You always have, like, Christmas carols low in the background or the amazing score. I love that Peter, the piano player – really kind of informs how the score goes because there's so much piano and so much deconstruction of piano sounds to this. I think it's probably one of the best scores for these Clark films. And so far we keep saying like, oh, the score is amazing for these. Also, the use of Christmas music in this film is exceptional. It's very easy to do a cheap use of almost any Christmas song you can think of. But in this film, those songs are so thoroughly integrated into the flow of the film that they never jump out at you. They, they never jump out and make you say, oh, man, God bless you, merry gentlemen. Wow, that's a cliche. It never works that way because it is so seamlessly blended into the visuals, into the camera movement, into the way that this film is put together. It's, it's really remarkable. And they tend to be inherently creepy if you tweak them just enough or even just have them playing low. And I think it's it it's another one of those aspects of the film that just ends up working so well as a plot point to have just pulled away at just the right time by these carolers whose rendition of that, that carol is just amazing for one thing. And at the opening with The Silent Night, which I believe – he uses again in a Christmas story. I, I think a silent night is used there as well. And kind of a similar nighttime scene. I noticed when I played this with subtitles, it's, it's like a second or third verse of that song, which, you know, usually if you go to church on Christmas, uh, which I, you know, did for years, you don't necessarily do the second, third and fourth verses, but I was kind of struck by the, the lyrics in that part of the song and wrote it down. It says shining where the mother mild, watches over the holy child and it may again be completely just by happenstance but it goes to billy's calls and it goes to jess's situation and obviously christmas songs are about the birth of jesus but having that mother child lyric in there just struck me this time as oh we're dealing with with that throughout the film and what is the deal with quote unquote billy and agnes and the baby and what happened and that I like that it's still kind of a mystery to me even now having watched it multiple times in the past and three times this week what is he talking about having happened like you said Mike earlier we get way too much of that in the 2006 remake 
And I like that I'm still thinking, well, did he kill the baby? Or is this a sexual assault, like it appears at one point? Or what exactly is going on? Or is it just the ravings of a madman? He does say at one point, it's used a couple of times, the line, don't tell them what we did, Agnes. That's the thing that kind of makes me go, oh, this might be something else. This might not be an accidental or even purposeful killing of a baby out of jealousy. This may be icky stuff. And I have to say the icky stuff that I always think about is incest. Right. That's, that's, that's what I'm kind of beating around the bush about. And I, I don't know. I'm like, is that what we're talking about? Or again, is it just ravings? Is what he's relating a story? Is it a story about him? Or is this just weird stuff that he's throwing out there to, to freak these girls out? Because they are freaky calls. I think the use of the multiple voices is probably really the freakiest part. I don't know if it's the content or the form that is stranger. I think it might be a mix of both. And I think they do a really good job of playing with that and having the voices change so that if feels like, and I, I know for a fact that they didn't have just one person doing the voices that you could switch over to another voice and layer things on top of each other. Because it is, you know, I was talking about radio play. Those phone calls themselves are just like little mini movies or little audio dramas throughout the entire movie that you just put in there. And it feels like it is telling a story. It feels like we are getting a linear narrative through there, but yeah, it's not very clear. And yeah, I was thinking incest as well. Even before I saw the 2006 movie, I was like, okay, it feels like Billy and his, maybe his little sister Agnes, and maybe they had a baby or I'm not exactly sure. Or maybe there was an abortion with that, or I don't know. Scrabble and Principal Skinner were in the closet making babies, and I saw one of the babies, and the baby looked at me. But it definitely felt like Billy had a relationship with Agnes, and it was not a good thing to have happen. I'm completely there with you, because to me, and I haven't seen either of the other films. I've only seen this one. There is something deeply family oriented and I see incest all the way through it, frankly. It's extremely insular and extremely close. And all those shots of the attic emphasize that to me. It's that we're all trapped in here together and it's a repeating cycle of some kind. I suspect that that probably is the thing that I found disturbing when I first saw this movie all those years ago didn't parse and articulate for myself. But I think that that is what made it stick with me the way it did. And unlike some things that I saw a long time ago that stuck in my brain, this is a movie that is as disturbing to me now as it was to me then. I did an episode on this for my show a while back, and I believe that one of the viewings that I did for that, I watched it real late at night. My wife and daughter were asleep, all the lights were off, and I just put it on as a lark. I may not have even been preparing for the episode. I think I just did it to watch it. I really felt those phone calls that time and ended up having a nightmare that night in my sleep. And that is really unusual for me. I never really even had nightmares as a kid. It wasn't related to the movie, but I woke up 
I had to wake myself up out of this dream. It was so disturbing. And I thought, yeah, maybe I shouldn't watch Black Christmas in the dark of night by myself. And I, I was surprised because I could really feel it digging in and even thinking, okay, there's there's a couple rooms behind the living room where the TV is that are in pitch black. And I would just kind of peek over my shoulder and have that that irrational fear that someone was in the house. And like I said, it rarely happens. So with, with the right setting, this is a movie that can dig in. And again, 1974, there's not a lot of gore. There's most of the kills are off screen or obfuscated in some way. It's mainly those phone calls are just so they dig in so well. And are so disorienting again, like the camera work and with that layering of voices. Now, again, if we're going to do the 15 things wrong about Black Christmas, I don't know how somebody can manipulate their voice that way and overlap, but it works for what they're going for, which is the effect and that overall feel of uh, the you know disturbing phone calls. I will say that on a personal level, and this is really personal, I'm asthmatic and all that wrapped in plastic part of this movie, really, if I were prone to anxiety attacks, watching Black Christmas again really would have triggered one in me. Because those sequences where you have that suffocation in plastic and that inhalation with plastic wrap, really, really anxiety producing. Clearly, you know, that's not a thing that is going to trigger everybody. But I also think that a lot of people can identify with it. The idea of having a plastic bag over your head is something that is extremely anxiety producing for most people. And that was the ad image that sold this movie. Then you have Barb having an asthma attack as well. So you've got it doubly in there. I was curious to see what my daughter would think because she has pretty bad asthma too. So she didn't, I think she was playing her game at that point. So. There is a lot of breathing trauma in this film. And yeah, to your point, it isn't that kind of slasher porn where it's like, oh, how can this girl get it? And oh, can we see, I don't know, an arrow go through the back of somebody's head and come out the front or just any of those, which you see. I mean, it's almost to the point of parody now when you watch something like, um, I don't know, like a Your Next or something. And it's just like, okay, we're going to do this or all the Final Destination movies where it's like, okay, how is this guy going to get it? And what kind of weird Rube Goldberg machinations are going to cause more head trauma or the person's chest to explode or something like that? Like, what is going to happen to this? And in this movie, it's very, very simple. And yes, leaves a lot more to the imagination, which I'm fine with. I really kind of like that. And yeah, I love that. I think it's... Claire's death where they go from her dying. You're talking about those shock cuts of audio where they go from that to the rest of the group laughing and screaming at something in the, you know, in the main room. It's like, that's really nice. And that, yeah, to your point, just happens again and again. It is really well done. And again, obfuscates the sound for the rest of them. And so you get why no one is, is hearing any of this stuff. And also to speak to that. That's the horror of suffocation. It's quiet. And it's also something that I think almost everybody has experienced in one way or another at one time or another. You know, whether uh, you were face down on the bed and 
woke up feeling like you couldn't breathe or you were in a pool and you were underwater for a moment more than you wanted to be suffocation. And I think I, I, I'm not sure whether you can hear it. I'm, I'm in the middle of a very bad asthma episode right now. So I am wheezing kind of badly, which makes this extremely relevant to me. I think a lot of us have experienced that feeling of, Ooh, I can't breathe in one way or another. And that is really primal. And I can tell you every time I look at the ad that was the main ad for this movie, it brings it right back to me. That face wrapped in plastic with that little indent, you know, where she's trying to breathe in. That is a really disturbing thing. And I'm guessing that probably people who never even saw this movie saw that ad and in some way experience the anxiety that that image produces, the idea of somebody putting a plastic bag over your head and you not being able to breathe. I definitely know I saw it decades ago in video stores, you know, on the wall. Never found the video, but I know I I was familiar with that poster, and it is. And I had an experience as a kid. I was in a sleeping bag, and these are those old nylon sleeping bags that aren't very breathable, and a couple of these kids were had wrapped kind of wrapped me in it and really panicked because I could not get a breath and so <laughs> when I see that kind of stuff that's the thought that I go back to and it's yeah it is it's horrifying it's it's a scary thought well and it's so much more effective to have that let's call it pain the pain that you know versus the unknown of like I've jumped into water that is too deep and I've gone too far and have had a panicked trying to get back up to the surface to breathe. I've never had my throat slit. I've never had an arrow shot through my head. So I can definitely appreciate that first death and realize like, oh yeah, that's really fucking scary. That image is very terrifying, much more so than getting a unicorn shoved through your head. And it's an image you come back to in the film. You see it more than once. Oh, yeah, lots of times. And as we said, it was the image that was in the ad. I like that they go back to it, not for that reason, but you get that overwhelming sense of dread and doom that she is still undiscovered. Mrs. Mack is undiscovered. When is anybody going to find them? Is it? I don't like to extrapolate beyond the movie, but I kind of can't help it with this one. What happens to Jess? And if Jess is killed, somebody's going to come back and find that. And then are they going to search the house? And then are they going to find Claire and Mrs. Mack? And will Billy be gone by then? And so on and so on. And I have seen, it's kind of like the end of the thing where people have used these clues through the film to say whether one of them is, is infected. And there is a line of dialogue and I think it's, it's Saxon. I think it's Lieutenant Fuller that says, because he's still thinking that Peter did it. Oh, he must have made a phone call after each killing. And I think people have taken that as gospel and relate every call that Billy makes in the film to a death or to a killing that he's just made. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really work. It doesn't really matter. You could say they're coming before and after because he breaks into the house, kills Claire, makes a call or or makes a call and kills Claire, what difference does it make? Claire is still alive when the first call is made. I think the thing that I had read was putting the death of that girl in the park a day before, which 
I don't believe is correct. The point was that, okay, he's making a call here at the end of the film again. That means that Jess is already dead. And I don't read it that way because we have just seen him in the attic and we're doing that crane shot coming out of there. And then he makes a phone call. I don't think enough time has passed for him to come down and got in the room, killed her, et cetera, et cetera. But again, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know that it's highly likely that something is going to happen to Jess at this point, but they could get out of it easily if they were to ever do a sequel. So <laughs> since it's not shown. All right, we are going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Simon Fitzjohn, author of Bob Clark, I'm Going to Kill You. And then we'll hear from actor Art Hindle. And last but not least, we will hear from David Hastings and Paul Downey, authors of It's Me, Billy, Black Christmas Revisited. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2. The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the scripts. Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present, and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com The bunker thriller American Refugee is now available on digital and on demand. In the midst of societal collapse, the Taylor family's last chance of survival is a neighbor's bunker where their fate lies in the hands of the family patriarch. When tensions rise, who can be trusted? Buy or rent American Refugee and watch it today, unrated, from Paramount Pictures. Hello, this is Mark Bagley, the host of Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. Wake Up Heavy is a show where I talk about movies that blew my mind as a kid. Things like Phantasm. This morning shots are bullshit. Tourist Trap. You are so pretty. Dead and Buried. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. And Halloween 3. A joke on the children. Guests have included friend of the show and host of the Projection Booth podcast, Mike White, genre film journalists Anya Stanley, Jerry Smith, Sam Panico, and Simon Fitzjohn. Every once in a while, I even convince my own daughter, Cleo, to join me. That's me. <laughs> Usually, though, it's just me, a mic, and my memories of some really wonderful horror films. So come check us out, wakeupheavy.com, soundcloud.com, slash wakeupheavy, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget... Anything can happen when you wake up heavy. Oh, 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 oh. 
welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from Simon Fitzjohn, the author of Bob Clark, I'm Going to Kill You. Simon Fitzjohn, tell me more about you and especially how you got into film writing. Well, it's, I mean, it's always been a passion of mine. Like film has always been a passion. And I think the passion for horror came from my parents without a shadow of a doubt. I, I suppose that may be the case with a lot of horror fans that they're that they're sort of reared on it if you like, from quite a young age. But yeah, I mean, the pivotal film moments for me when I was a youngster was of, you know, I had a younger brother and we used to sleep in bunk beds. My sort of mum was a huge horror fan, more than my dad was, but they used to go to horror films together when they were dating, you know, as as you do. But uh, my mum always kept that passion for horror going. But um, as I said, she never really, she wasn't a fan of the genre in terms of, I must go and see the latest John Carpenter movie, or I must go and see, oh, the latest Argento. You know, she wouldn't know the names of directors. She wouldn't even remember the names of films sometimes, but she would just absorb these horror films and remember moments and bits and, you know, and that's what she would feed off to me. But yeah, like I say, my earliest memories were she would come up like on a Friday night, nine, 10 o'clock at night when I was nine, 10 and sort of say, you know, tap me on the shoulder to see if I was still awake and that my younger brother below me was asleep. And it was like, right, put your dressing gown on, you can come downstairs, you know, and it'd be things like the thing being shown on TV or Halloween and, you know, Jaws, Alien, you know, these like 70s, 80s films that were getting like a TV screening over here in the UK. And I remember the only thing I was told, you know, I just kept talking to me and saying, you know, this isn't real, right? You know, this isn't real. And again, a very British thing that she was more worried about, say, Halloween, for example, no problem with Michael Myers putting a knife in poor, uh, you know, Bob and ha- hanging him on the wall. When some boobs get shown, suddenly it's close your eyes, close your eyes, you know, sort of, uh, which is a, <laughs> a very British thing, I suppose. But but that was it. I mean, I was hooked. I remember just watching. It was probably Halloween, actually, that I remember just watching and thinking, I've never seen anything like this before because my film experience up to that point was like Disney, you know, and 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 suddenly you go from Disney, <laughs> Disney to Haddonfield is is quite a quite a swerve, and that was it. I was I was then hooked, you know, I was absolutely hooked on horror and um, have been my whole life really, you know, was never able to go down the film route as I made a film at university purely for fun, as because I did a degree totally unrelated to film, but a friend of mine he was a huge film fan and we just said well why don't we just make a film let's just make a bloody slasher movie you know set in our hall of it our campus you know with a masked killer going around killing as many people as we possibly can and um, and we did and you know I, he actually funnily enough the guy i made the film with went to film school after uh, because he enjoyed it so much and now he is a editor in hollywood um, editing the Mission Impossible movies and Top Gun and, <laughs> and and everything else. Well, here I am sat in my bedroom talking to you about, about films. But uh, it's funny how life goes, isn't it? But yeah, that was it. I've just never got rid of that passion. And although I was, my career took me down different pathways into teaching, you know, I work at a university. Now you've got that option of like you have with podcasting, you can keep that passion alive. And so with me, it was let's write about films I enjoy. And so that originally started with setting up a sort of website at a newspaper I was working at where we did some podcasting and bits and pieces. And then that just expanded to writing for magazines. And I've um, written three books and I continue to write for the Dark Side magazine, which is obviously a British magazine, but I know it's got a fairly decent following in the States. 
you know, a sort of re- the retro horror sort of thing, which is which is what I enjoy writing about most because, you know, my real passion is is like researching the stuff, really, Mike, you know, not necessarily reviewing like modern releases, although I watch as much modern stuff as I can. It's more finding out how this happened. You know, how, how did this get made? Whose idea was this? You know, this game changer. Where did that, how did that come about? And that was what led me to Black Christmas, really, you know, and, and writing a book on Bob Clark. I'm not sure anybody else has written a book on Bob Clark, so I might be the only one that, that sort of has. And yeah, here I am now talking to you. Was Black Christmas, was that your first Bob Clark? No, but interestingly, it was the first one I heard about because, as I sort of referenced earlier, my mum would always be throwing me these clips and moments from films that she would remember. And uh, this was pre-internet, obviously, so you couldn't just Google search, right? And so she would always talk about, there was this film I went to see, you know, and it was amazing, and it's about a set of college kids, and there's phone calls, and it turns out the guy is in the house, you know, in the attic making the phone calls. And she said, but I can't remember what it's called. And so at that time, this was probably mid-90s, and so I was talking to friends I knew, people I knew, you know, going into reference lines, poking around in books. Couldn't really find anybody that knew what I was talking about um, until one person came along in a sort of a, I used to work originally when I left college, I worked in like a DVD sort of store, you know, DVD and CD store. And uh, yeah, one of the people I worked with said, I know that film, it's called Black Christmas. So there was my lead, but it was unavailable. It wasn't available. It wasn't available on VHS in the UK. It wasn't available on DVD, totally unavailable. And so then a a sort of VHS label sort of started up. I can't remember the name, Redemption, possibly, that started releasing, you know, retro stuff and re-releasing things. And they released Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, which was the first Bob Clark I actually saw. But still, I'd never seen Black Christmas at this point. And then, lo and behold, I think it was, I still remember, it was Christmas Eve, 1997. That's how pivotal a moment it was for me, Mike. I can remember the date it got shown on TV in the UK on one of the lesser channels over here. And I remember my the, the colleague who told me about the film faxing me. Yeah, again, so this is dating the story, faxing me to say, you're not going to believe this. Black Christmas is on Channel 4 at like 11.35 on Christmas Eve. And I thought, wow, this is it. This is the seminal moment. But I thought I was prepared to be let down, you know, because so often when when you build things up in your mind, certainly with films, I think if you if you miss the hype train, as it were, and you come to a film late, very often you're like, you build it up into something it can't possibly be in terms of its quality. But, but Black Christmas, it was the opposite. I thought, crikey, if anything, my mum has undersold how good this is. And and watching it with a like, how come more people don't talk about this film? You know, when it's, when it's sort of like, you think of all the films it came before that have sort of copied elements of it. And you think, well... I've got to do something about this. And so, you know, and so from that point on, anytime anybody said, oh, got any films to recommend, you know, any horror films to recommend, didn't matter if it was in the heat of summer, it'd be like, yeah, Black Christmas, you know, that that's one to watch, that's one to watch. And then lo and behold, years later, that then leads me down the path of writing a book on Bob Clark. Yeah, how did the book come about? Because it's one thing to be a fan of the films, but to take out a whole book project is something completely different. Well, it was partly down to the publisher that I work for. So there's there's a company over in the UK called Hemlock Books, and they'll be absolutely delighted. I'm giving them a shout out there as well. So, but it's run by a guy called Dennis Meekle, who's like a real old school horror guy. Like he would be on, he was on set when the Hammer films were made, 
you know, so he's interviewed Cushing Lee, you know, all the all the greats. And um, so he has a horror company which they import horror mags and sell them, but they also publish their own stuff as well. And so he was involved with Dark Side magazine, which I started writing for. And then they said they were coming up with these ideas of a new series of like what they called horror companions, where the focus would either be a specific director or a specific genre, a subgenre of, of sort of horror. And so I originally went to him and said, can I write a book just on Black Christmas, purely on Black Christmas? To which the response was no, because they didn't think there was a market for it to do a book just on Black Christmas. Well, I said, well, OK, then. Well, considering Bob Clark did Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and Death Dream and Murder by Decree, you know, and the, there was the Black Christmas remake, you know, had been around at that time. And then there was lots of other offshoot bits and pieces, Deranged. There was a bit of popcorn you could work in, you know, that the, the, the 90s film. And when I went back and said, well, how about a book on Bob Clark then? And they sort of relented on that. So, you know, I didn't get, I got a pitiful amount of money for it, Mike. I don't mind admitting that, pitiful. But it was it allowed me to write about something I was passionate about. And, you, you know, and, and, you know, whether it be, I think, and this is the thing, it's the passion of the people that keeps this stuff going, whether it be writing for magazines or podcasting or, or whatever it is, you know, so often people are doing stuff for free because they love it, because they love the genre. And suddenly I'm, I'm talking to Olivia Hussey, you know, about Black Christmas. And you're like, well, you know, I'd have paid to do that, not, not, not be paid you know, not, not actually paid to do it. You know, I'm happily going to do this because I actually love it. And being able to big up a director that I think sort of got the recognition, but too late. He got the recognition too late. You know, he basically got the recognition and then he died. You know, when people started appreciating what he'd done in the sort of 70s, you know, it's just a shame, which is what I wanted my book to be, to say, if you look at that run of movies he did from Children to Death Dream to Black Christmas Deranged, you know, it's like that. that's a hell of a run when when you're not working with much money, you know, which he wasn't doing. Yeah, wasn't the budget for Black Christmas like $640,000? It was just such a small amount. It is. But interestingly, Bob Clark said that was, quote, a monumental amount of money. <laughs> because, you know, when you think the previous films he'd done, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things was done for about 100 grand, 100,000. And then Death Dream and deranged were both around the 200,000 to 250. So suddenly you've gone from 200,000 to triple that for Black Christmas. You know, and 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 as he said what it allowed him to do was get people on board involved in the film, certainly the casting of it, that if he was making a $200,000 film probably wouldn't have happened. So and you know and and you know from watching the film, you know, they 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 get every last penny out of it because a lot of it is so enclosed. You know, they, they lucked out, well, not lucked out that because they found it, but the house sells the film. You know, if you find a house like that and they can dress it up like they did and put sort of track camera tracks all around and just have that camera moving around, you don't need expensive effects. You don't need millions of dollars because it's, 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 it's gritty. You know, it still has that grittiness about it. I, I literally watched it again last night for the, God knows how many times I've watched it. And I was still watching it, thrilled by it. You know, I remember mentioning it last night again, saying, I was just shaking my head time, saying that this film is so, excuse me, so bloody good. You know, so good. It's so good. It's like, it still gives me the chills now when those, you know, when the phone calls start and the, you know, the Carl Zitra piano scraping sounds come in. I think like this film absolutely nails it, absolutely nails 
creepiness. Totally. It's an amazing cast in there. And a lot of faces I wouldn't necessarily expect. I was very happy to see Andrea Martin in there. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was one of, I think, either a first or second film. I think uh, she certainly hadn't done much. And she only stepped in as a late replacement, actually, because I think it was Gilda Radner was going to originally play that part. And then th there was a couple of examples of that with people being drafted in last minute. John Saxon, for example, he got drafted in uh, literally two days before filming started because the original Lieutenant Fuller, they had an actor called Edmund O'Brien, who was Oscar winner, you know, veteran, veteran actor. And they cast him. He was agreed. They met him at Toronto Airport, took him for dinner and realized he, he had the early onset dementia. And so it was like they said he didn't when they when they met him at the airport, he didn't seem to know where he was, you know what? He didn't know the lines. And it was like, oh, my goodness, you know, we, we can't we can't have this guy. You know, we can't have it, have him. And now, luckily for them, John Saxon had originally tried out for the role and been turned down. So they went back to John um, because he was friends with Carl Zittra, actually, John Saxon, and basically said, look, if you want the part, it's yours, but it means you've literally got to get on a flight to Toronto like now. And he said that he arrived, went straight into makeup, and then two o'clock in the morning, he's doing the scene in the park where they have the search party and he's got the megaphone saying there's going to be sets of dogs and there's going to be, you know, that's literally five minutes after he landed, he's doing that. But you wouldn't know, would you, from his part? He's so good at it. He's so good in it as well. When you talked about how this movie presaged so many other horror films, and as I'm watching it now in 2021, I'm just like, oh, which came first, him in that role or him in the same role in, what was it, Nightmare on Elm Street? Exactly. I mean, he's just a, just a great actor. And I, and I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, I think I wrote in in the you know the chapter that I wrote on the book. I said it's it's rare to see a horror film where the acting is so strong across the board. You know there isn't really a dud performance there. You know you've got Olivia Hussey who's phenomenal. Then you've got the you've got Margot Kidder who's not the comedy character, but she certainly gets a lot of laughs out of her character. And you've got Kia Delay. You know, and and yeah, it's 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 just an incredible cut. You know, it's it's you know they like to use that phrase ensemble and throw it around a lot, don't they? But uh, that's very much what it was. And I think what helped with the film, and certainly from Bob Clark's perspective, when you speak to the cast, is there weren't any real egos on on the set. You know, certainly not from Bob. You know, basically, you know, and then Margot Kidder said that with you know with Barb, her character, it was basically. Bob would say to her, look, as long as you say these lines roughly, I don't care what you add to it. You know, you can put it, you can swear, you can, you can do whatever you want, you know, just make the character your own. As long as you hit these points, these plot points that need to be explained in the, in the sort of script. But apart from that, just do what you want. She loved that. She said she absolutely loved it. You know, having that freedom, especially with like the, <laughs> the scenes on the phone and sort of, uh, you know, it's just great stuff. Bob was always keen to modest, I suppose is the word I'm looking for. He was, he was a modest director. You know, he was very quite, he was very easygoing. You know, everybody on the set of Black Christmas, you know, the people I spoke to, he said it was all, you know, not necessarily relaxed, but there wasn't stress. There wasn't stress. And he was keen to give people credit. So even you look at the script for the film, for, for example. So if you look on the, the credits of the film, it's, it's credited as being written by Roy Moore is credited as writing the film. Now, 
Roy Moore, he, orig- he came up with what was the original version of the film, which had been knocking around the studios for about three years without anybody taking it and biting on it. But originally it was written very differently. It was originally written as a film called The Babysitter. And then it was about a psychotic who was stalking people at the house of his former doctor or his doctor. That, so it's a similar sort of idea, but the characters and the, and the, the concept was sort of different, if you like. And it was Bob that stepped in and said, no, what we're going to do is we're going to make this college kids, you know, or, you know, and it's going to be a sort of sorority house and it's this and there's going to be no doctors involved. And he rewrote it, you know, and added the Mrs. Mack scenes. That was all written by Bob. But he's not credited on the film as, as having anything to do with the script. You know, he just let Roy Moore take the whole credit. You know, which again is you've got to be comfortable within yourself, I think, to be able to just sort of uh, say, well, look, I don't need the credit for this. You you take the credit for it. It always felt like Clark liked to work with the same people and just kind of evolved like his regular cast of characters behind the, the scenes and even in front of the camera. I know Mrs. Mack was the same actress who was in Deranged. Were there other people that kind of held over from previous films into Black Christmas? Not so much into Black Christmas. I mean, obviously you've got Carl Zitter who did the who did the score, you know, who did the score for for all of Bob's, well, all of those early films, but not really. You I mean you didn't like Alan Ormsby wasn't there in a, in any shape or form. I think it was because partly because he'd full blown moved to Canada for this, you know, as opposed to you know Children and Death Dream. They were filmed in Florida. And then obviously Deranged was filmed near Toronto, but even that started sort of moving away from the the sort of Bob Clark pack, if you like. But I, I think it was more just that, you know, with, with more money opens up more options of who you can bring in. So I think, you know, with, with the early films, certainly with something like Children and Death Dream, it was like calling in favours, you know, oh, um, you've got a yacht, haven't you? Right, well, can we borrow that yacht? And then you can be a zombie in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things if we can borrow your yacht for one of the scenes, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And, and you know, you had the whole crew that had been doing drama and theatre in the Florida area, which is how Bob and Alan Ormsby and, and that sort of Jeff Gillen and that gang all got together. But when it moved to Black Christmas, suddenly there was a lot of money involved and there was companies involved and there were bigger names involved and I think it was just a gradual, not necessarily getting better, but he had more options, I suppose, is, 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 is the sort of best way to describe it. But couldn't get anybody better than Carl Zitcher for music because the score for Black Christmas, as I'm sure you'll agree, is, is again, one of, the, one of the most memorable aspects of the film. What I like how he uses the piano in that, and it really ties to that Cure Delay character and especially his mental instability. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's actually, Carl, you know, the scene where Keir Delay is doing his examination recital for the sort of, uh, well, examiners, as we call them. That's actually Carl Zitra playing the piano in that. It's only the sort of wide shots that they actually had Keir Delay when it's the, you see the hands furiously hammering away at the keys. That's actually Carl Zitra playing that. So, you know, there's a few bits and pieces like that. Like the first time we technically see Billy, it is when his, silhouette appears at the window doesn't it right in the opening scene of the film before he climbs the trellis up into the attic so the silhouette that appears at the window is bob clark you know that that was him and then it became the camera operator who in effect was bert dunk who was in effect billy quote unquote 
for the rest of the film because they were able to set up this rig where they put the camera on his shoulders so he was able to actually move because I may be jumping ahead here, Mike, but, you know, the whole POV sort of thing, again, is not necessarily the first time a killer's point of view had been shown in a film because you could argue there's like Peeping Tom or, or sort of stuff like that. But in terms of how effective it is and how we come to know the killer's hands, the classic slasher point of view, that probably was the first time because, you know, Steadicam hadn't been invented and they somehow came up with this rig where the camera's on his shoulders so you can see his hands, you can see, you know, everything he's doing. And again, it's just another one of those things where I think every time I watch it or tell people to watch the film, I sort of say, look, remember, this is 1974. Halloween doesn't come out for four years. When a stranger calls doesn't come out for five years. You know, remember that, not sit there and say, oh, well, that's cliche, that's cliche. And it's like, it wasn't cliche when it came out because nobody had done this before. Black Christmas, was that part of what they would call the Canadian tax shelter films? I don't think so. I don't think there was any, there were Canadian companies obviously involved in the funding. I mean, it was multiple companies put like 100, 200 grand in each. I may be proved wrong there, but I don't think it was. No, I'm not aware of that. Mike, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Well, it is nice too. And I know you point this out in your book, how he removes violence that could be there that he cuts around the violence this really is it's not necessarily a bloodless film but it's pretty close to it yeah absolutely um it's very similar to halloween really isn't it you know when you when you think about it and 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 again it's like i I was i was thinking about this thinking back to when i saw you know halloween kills recently and thinking like you look at the amount of violence in that compared to say 78 halloween and 74 black christmas and you know halloween kills i'll have you know, I shrugged the shoulders when I watched it. You don't need it. You know, the story is always the thing. And uh, yeah, it's bizarre. I think with with Black Christmas, what's bizarre is a couple of the, there was a couple of the reviews when it came out, with which were which were negative reviews. I think it was Variety, and they sort of said it was. You know, they said it's like a bloodbath. You know, unnecessary. And it's like bloodbath. Did did you actually watch the film? You know, what what, what at what point apart from apart from a little bit of Blood on a unicorn, glass unicorn, you know, and streaming on Kiva's face. Where's where's the blood in the film? You know, where is it? And I think that to me was testament to the mood the film had created. Similar to, I would argue it's similar to like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, the, the first one, Mike, where people think of that as being this absolute carnage bloodbath. And it isn't. How much blood is there in Texas Chainsaw Massacre? You know, there really isn't, is there? But it's such a an intense film and that I think people have it distorts people's minds and they they think of it as being so much more graphic and and full on than it actually was purely because they were they were sort of caught up in the moment if you like when when they were watching it or even upset even upset by it certainly scared by it but yeah you, you don't need it I don't think it were and that was the same that's what disappointed me with the with, you know, the Black Christmas remake in, you know, which, you know, I understand trying to do something different with a film rather than just rehashing it. But I don't know what you think, Mike, but I just wasn't a fan of the of the remake at all. It was like, right, let's take everything that worked in 74. So we don't know who the killer is. There's just lots of hints and there's no real blood, but it's all about the tension and building and building this claustrophobic sense of that the, they're trapped in the house. 
Let's throw all that out the window and let's have loads of gore and let's show exactly who the person is, you know, and it was just like, right, okay, I, I, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> you know, you've, you've lost me. You've lost me. What were some of the most surprising things you found when you were doing your research? What surprised me was how, again, and this happens so often with horror films, doesn't it? How, how so few people liked it when it came out. You know, that's what always surprises me with these things. And and it's not Black Christmas is by no means a one-off in this. You know, you look at, you know, I, I was amazed, you know, I had to do a book chat. Well, one of the other books I read, I wrote, was a book on the, the Psycho franchise and, um, you know, and the character of Norman Bates from Ed Gein to Robert Block's book to the Psycho books, right up to Bates Motel, the TV series. And um, again, you, you look at the reviews when Psycho came out and they were absolutely vicious you know, the reviews were vicious. You know, you think of the reception the thing got when it came out, you know, absolutely slaughtered. And now these films are held up as like top 100 films of all time, not horror film all or any genre. And it was the same with Black Christmas. You know, nobody had a good word to say about the film until it turned up a year later on its American run. Then it got us at a few nice reviews. But what what in, yeah i was just amazed at how how really how really negative the reviews were when it came out to the extent that you know i read articles in like the toronto newspapers at the time where you suddenly had the producers backtracking you know in terms of oh uh, you know well it wasn't intended you know and all this sort of stuff and it's like well hang on you know it's it's not your fault that these people haven't appreciate, <laughs> appreciated what they got in front of them and the, and the audience did you know it was a huge it was a huge hit in Canada, aside from that, nobody else seemed to know what to do with it. And I think that's the thing. I think it's just a, you could argue this is because, was this because it was a game changer? You know, so it wasn't like a, right, well, that film's been a success. Therefore, we just need as many imitators as we can and we'll back them to the hilt. People didn't really know what to do with this. And like, um, certainly when it went to America, because Warner Brothers took it on for the American release, like a year later. And they tried to get everything changed. So they they went back, they went to Bob Clark and said, right, we're going to release this. It's a big studio. There's more money behind it. You know, it's the first time Bob had ever worked with a studio before. And they said, the only thing is we want you to change the ending. And like, what do you mean change the ending? And it's like, well, we can't have this ending where you don't know who the killer is. So you're going to have to go back and shoot something where you get shown who the killer is. And they suggested Art Hindle's character. That's who Warner Brothers wanted, Claire's boyfriend, Chris, because he's at the house at the end, if you remember, when when Olivia Hussey has been sedated and he's there and he says, oh, I'll has anybody contacted this parent and I'll contact them? And they wanted him to sort of stay in the room and then sort of shut the door and sort of say, you know, oh, it's me, Billy, sort of thing. And, it's, and Bob was like you must be joking. <laughs> you know, you must be joking. That, that, that just ruins the entire point of the film if you're doing that. And so they said, okay, fine. They changed the title from Black Christmas to Silent, you know, the, the sort of Silent Night, Evil Night, um, because um, this was this, this, this was my, the funniest moment when I was doing my research was they changed the title because they thought audiences would think it was a black exploitation film. So they, they said, we can't have this film called Black Christmas because white audiences will think it's a black exploitation film. And it's like, well, despite the fact it's been shown, it was the biggest hit in Canada last year. You know, right. Okay. Um, so Silent Night, Evil Night. They then said, oh, to hell with it. We just don't really 
and we aren't fussed about this film at all. So they released it in August, August 75, you know, which is obviously when everybody wants to go and see a Christmas horror movie, isn't it? You know, August. What that did mean, though, was I saw some fantastic promo shots of people in Santa costumes going around L.A. beaches, handing out badges saying, you know, Black Christmas is coming sort of thing. But it sort of pretty much died a death everywhere else, you know, other than Canada until this whole DVD resurrection and suddenly, you know, Bob Clark gets reappraised in like the 90s and uh, suddenly then everybody's sort of clamouring for get his opinion on things. But no, I think that was what surprised me the most was how, how again, how negatively received it was when it, when it was first released. And what was the most surprising thing you found out about Clark while you were researching? The fact that nobody had a, this is, this sounds bad to say it was a surprise, but the fact that nobody had a bad word to say about it. It was refreshing for me to think that somebody could get to the position he had and make the films he did without being an arsehole. You know, but it was this camaraderie, everybody having fun. You know, I think Olivia Hussey, I said, what was, you know, I said, what was your biggest memory? And she said the biggest memory of making Black Christmas was how much fun she had and how Bob Clark would take her to a Chinese restaurant every weekend. You know, and it was, and you know, and it was just little stories like this where people were with him, wanted to with him again. You know, the and 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 I think that was what surprised me the most. And the shame is that because he didn't get appreciated for what he was, suddenly his career went all over the place. I mean, you know, we're talking about a guy that made baby geniuses for God's sakes. You know, and like Karate Dog. You know, and it was just when I was going through his filmography for the book, it was just mind boggling the the straight to DVD nonsense that was that was coming out later in his career. And then suddenly, as I say, the Black Christmas gets reappraised. Then there's the remake. And then suddenly it's all oh, Bob Clark, Bob Clark. Let's let Fangorio are going to do a retrospective on, you know, and then he's in a car crash, you know, and suddenly he's dead, you know, killed by a drink driver. That's for me is the shame. When you look at the films he did in the 70s, you think if there had been enough awareness of what he was doing and what he was capable of, we could have been talking about Bob Clark as, you know, like I said, in my, you may say the names Carpenter, Hooper, Craven, you say all these guys and everybody knows who you're talking about. You know, when I say, well, actually, one of my favorite horror directors is this guy called Bob Clark. Who? You know, who? You know, and, and it's like, that's, that's the, that was the shame for me which was another one of the prompts to write the book, you know, really to sort of to, to write the wrong as it were. Was there a moment in his career where things suddenly took that turn? I mean, because obviously Porky's was a huge hit, a Christmas story. You know, I remember seeing that at the theater. I don't know if it was as popular then as it is now. I remember Rhinestone when it came out, Turk 182, loose cannons i was a little fuzzy on and then it just kind of after that it seems to kind of dip down yeah i mean it was it was all over the place i mean yeah i mean to be fair to bob he never set out to be a horror director you know he never set out to be a horror director you know he didn't start in horror he made these absolutely bizarre exploitation films in the 60s which very few people have seen you know you know totally off the wall films like she man shanty tramp you know, you know, absolute. And this was before children shouldn't play with dead things. You know, this was this was, you know, he was making films um, where the studio was part of a funeral parlor, you know, where he started making films in, in Florida. And so he he saw horror as the means to an end. You know, it was like, I want to be a film director. I haven't got much money to play with. 
what type of films can I make? So I can either make, in his words, he said it was either horror or porn. And he said, I had no interest in porn, therefore horror it was. And so that's where he started. And then after Black Christmas, he went straight into, I think it was a film called Breaking Point, which was like an action, sort of one of these vigilante type films. He was involved in like this forerunner to the Dukes of Hazard, bizarrely called, I think it was the Moon Runners or the Moonshine, something like that. But like the what, what became the Dukes of Hazard. Then he sort of dips back into it a bit with Murder by Decree. But then after that, like you said, Porky's and suddenly the whole landscape changed for him. You know, goodness knows how profitable that film was, you know, like crazily profitable. And that became an industry in its own right, the Porky's films, didn't it? And, you know, there was even a Porky's computer game, which I didn't realise, you know, for the Atari. You know, I think a Porky's game, you know, the mind boggles on that really, doesn't it? He seems to have worked with some incredible people, but just in very poor films. So, yeah, and, and there was even a bizarre Dolly Parton, Sylvester Stallone you know, <laughs> you know, you think like I, I, that was the that was the thing for me that was staggering when I was researching him was just the hot footing around the genres and types of films he was making. It was crazy, but um, yeah, Loose Cannons. That's the Gene Hackman sort of a uh, Dan Aykroyd one, and I think what was a great story on that. I don't know if you're aware of this, but because the film was such a bomb, they had cans of the film that they just buried in landfill. Uh, yeah, uh, because they just because the, no no cinema wanted to show it. You know, it was a complete box office dud. So they just said, "Well, like literally, just bury this film. Literally bury it." And um, and then like years later, there was this news story where some guy working at a waste disposal site came across one of the films, came across some of the celluloid, and sort of found a bit of strip of the celluloid, which was a scene where one of the characters was being tortured or killed in the film, and so then went to the police saying he'd found a snuff movie. And, uh, and and there was this whole news investigation, and they even had Dan Aykroyd involved saying, no, 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 this is this, it's not a snuff movie, it's this film, Loose Cannons, but it says, you know, it it belongs in the trash or something derogatory, he sort of said, you know, but, you know, my goodness, you know, the unbelievable stuff. I spoke with Ronnie Cox years ago, and I was asking him about some of his best and least favorite times on films, and he was telling me oh yeah there's one movie i don't want to say the title and he was just talking about how awful it was and i just was like was it loose cannons he's like yeah yeah it was (laughs) you just sit and watch you sit and watch some films and you do just wonder don't you like how did this get made who who greenlit it did nobody realize this wasn't good a good idea you know and and i i think i think what happens is so far they just get so far into these things where you think well We've spent this much money on it. We've just got to finish it, you know, and and then maybe it'll make something back somehow. But yeah, and I think I always have to remind myself that for the vast majority on these films, it is just their job. It is just work. It is not something they are necessarily passionate about. And, you know, we are passionate about it and we're emotionally involved in it. The people making it aren't necessarily emotionally involved in it. For them, it's just a paycheck. And where do I go? What do you want me? What lines do I say? I'm not even going to watch this film when it's made, you know. And so I think you know, it's we we just need to keep reminding ourselves sometimes that that's it's an industry, you know. At the end of the day, it's a business. As someone who has seen so many Bob Clark films, and we've talked about how all over the map he was with the films that he chose to do or ended up doing. Did you find certain themes? Were there things that interested him that he would explore throughout his films? 
Not really. I didn't really find much in the way of theme. I think there was certainly an element in his films of, you know, he, he had a very troubled upbringing. So I think, you know, childhood was something that, or, or, or you know, pre-adulthood was something that interested him. How young people, young people interested him, full stop. You know, yeah, because he had quite a troubled upbringing. He didn't really have much time with his dad, his mum. You know, they moved around the country a lot when he was young bounced around and then because I think he was you know he ended up in Florida but he wasn't born there you know he ended up in Fort Lauderdale and that's when he suddenly became a bit of a film fan but so I think that's what he wanted to do with Black Christmas actually because he said you know he that's why he rewrote it so it wasn't adults like full-blown adults it was college well we can't call them college kids as such can we but you know students students you know because he said that that allowed him to sort of open the film up a bit because they're more playful they're more fun the characters you know they've got their lives ahead of them you know it's more tragic you know when they're in peril can be so so not so much films but but i think it's more uh, themes mike but i think more because his childhood had been so um turbulent that I think that suddenly paid. I'm certain. I don't think I could possibly work baby geniuses into this argument about it. But, you know, <laughs> you never know. Your book came out in what 2014, I think it was. It's been out of print as long as I remember. I've been trying to get it for years, and that's going for almost a thousand dollars on Amazon, uh, which is which is preposterous. Isn't Congratulations! It? Which is, which is, yeah, which is totally preposterous. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know how that happened. To be perfectly honest with you, but yeah, it's a nice calling card, isn't it? Somebody else pointed that out to me once, and I was like, "What? What are you? What are you, what are you talking about?" You know, sort of. Uh, you know, I can scan and send you a copy if you want. You know, there's sort of a. You know, it's ridiculous, but no, I was just glad to. I was just glad to do my bit, really. You know, for for Bob because. Um, yeah, it's he's he's somebody that does need to get talked about more, and and certainly Black Christmas. You know, Black Christmas, it's, it stands up so well now. You know, you can watch it. Like I said, I, I literally watched it last night because I thought, let's give it another spin, you know, before talking to you. And it's still fresh. It's not dated. You know, it, it still hits in the right places. You know, it still creeps me out. You know, and the phone calls start. The thing that has changed to me over the years of watching it is the first time I watched it, the Mrs. Mac character annoyed me. Okay, that was the thing. That and and the regular little droplets of humour that are sort of dropped. You know, Sergeant Nash, for example, the sort of like the bumbling cop with his you know fellatio, you know, except scene, etc. You know, all those bits. And I thought, I thought the first time I watched it because I was younger. I think when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, 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 get on with that. I don't care about she stashed a bottle of whiskey or something in the toilet. You know, just get to the next person being killed. But then again, over time, as I've watched it again. I've matured as an audience, if if that makes sense, Mike. And and I think now I appreciate the pacing of the film more, you know, and I know the comedy stuff was stuff that Bob put in to the film when he rewrote it. And, you know, and he said, well, that's real life. Real life has comedy and horror and scares and people just goofing around and seeing, he said, you know, I'm going to, I wanted to put scenes in the film that didn't necessarily advance the plot, but just built the characters you know, so so these are these are proper characters. You know, you think of the, you know, the Olivia Hussey, the Margot Kidder, Andrea Mar. These are real characters in that film. You care about them. You know, they're 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 not knife fodder as you see so often in slashes, where it's like I couldn't even tell you anything about 
that character, what I couldn't even remember what their name was. You know, if you say Phil and Barb and Jess, you know, you remember those characters because the time was taken to sort of uh, develop them and let them breathe. And then you start picking people off. Uh, but, you know, the body count's not great, is it? I mean, we have like, what, three, four people being killed. And yeah, and then you have the ending, of course, you know, which which we all love. Yeah, and so I think that was one thing that definitely changed my appreciation of the film. If it's the right phrase to say, it's a very adult horror film, I think. You know, it's not a, it's not a like a teen slasher. You know, it gets lumped in with that a little bit at times, you know, as being like the grandfather of it all, but it's not really. Will the Clark book ever come back out in print? Ooh, you'd have to ask Hemlock. I think, I think I, the books were done on a bit of a Clark-esque shoestring budget. They basically printed as many as they hoped to sell, I think was what I got told. So if you see any of the books still on the website available, technically that means it's underperformed, if that, if that makes sense, because there's still, some, there's still some available to buy. So the fact that my Bob Clark one isn't available gave me a little bit of a kick because, you know, I, never, I was never told. There was no commission basis. There was no royalties for me. It was just one, one paltry upfront fee, and that was it. And so the fact that it isn't available, I thought, ah, well, actually then, that can't have done that badly. They all went. So, you know, it was, they, they, it, was, it was worth it doing for them as much as it was for me. But no, I mean, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, you know, that by all means, I've got all the chapters and everything on my laptop and, you know, people have got in touch. There's, you know, people I'm good friends with, you know, like Mark Begley, who I know you know, for example, and, you know, every so often somebody says, can you send me the chapter on this? Can you send me the chapter on that? And I'm I'm more than happy to, you know, it's like if it's getting the word out there, you know, then that, that's, that's fine by me. What are you working on now? Do you remember many, it was a good few years ago now, Mike, when you did a, one of your podcasts on Full Circle. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah, you, you had Keela on, didn't you? And you, I have been working on trying to get Full Circle re-released now for just over five years five years and that's working with Richard Longcrane the director Peter Fetterman the producer and yeah that has proved a logistical nightmare an absolute logistical nightmare because we've we found the negative but we are unable to restore it and re-release it until we prove who owns it and that has been five years of lawyers legal mumbo jumbo red tape bureaucracy, people shutting doors in my face, because everybody who originally bankrolled the film or the people who originally bankrolled the film are all dead. And so suddenly you've got this situation where Technicolor, who have the negative, are saying, well, according to our records, the owner of the film is this person. And it's like, yeah, that person died in 2016. You know, their, their, their company was liquidated in 1999. So, and they're like, Yes, but we need a we need a chain of ownership. Who did he sell it to? And it's like he didn't sell it to anybody. You know, he he just died. He just died. His company was was extinct. Therefore, why can't we have it? Nobody's going to come forward and say you can't re-release this because that's my film. Technicolor have just dug their heels in, you know, and just said unless we can provide some paperwork that says this is the person that now owns this film they're not going to give it to us. And it's infuriating, absolutely infuriating. 
because as I've said to them, how am I ever going to be able to find that paperwork? You know, well, what paperwork? And I said, does somebody even have to file paperwork if they hand over the rights to a film? And they're like, no, they don't. It can just be word of mouth. And it's like, well, well, then how on earth am I going to, how on earth am I going to provide you with some sort of document that says Julian Melzack gave the rights to full circle to this person on his deathbed? And so it's desperately frustrating because that is a film, you know, Full Circle or Haunting of Julia, you know, is a film that I hold just as dearly as Black Christmas. And uh, yeah, and I've written magazine articles on it. I've got, you know, the separate Twitter feed and Instagram account just for Full Circle because I've, I've like interviewed, apart from Mia Farrow, I've interviewed absolutely everybody else that was involved in that film, from Tom Conti to literally the script advisor to the wardrobe person, <laughs> you know? So yeah, absolute madness. It's madness, Mike. It's like, don't be impressed because it's madness. You know, it's, it's absolutely insanity that I'm doing that I could, that I could, you know, that I get excited because I spoke to somebody who designed one of the coats that Mia Farrow wore in the film. And it's like, who else is going to be excited about that? You know, it's just madness. And this is the thing, isn't it? And it, it was the same with Bob Clark. You know, it was, I t- you know, with, with when I was writing about Bob, I tracked down, I don't know how it happened, but I tracked down, the, you can't even call her an actress because she wasn't an actress, but the woman who played the zombie bride in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. There's literally a zombie that comes out in a wedding dress, if you remember in the film. I somehow tracked her down that she works in an art gallery in New Orleans. And I remember phoning her and saying, you know, this bizarre, you have this bizarre nervous weight while you say, you know, you are Joe Blog, Sue Smith, you know, would you happen to be the same person who is a zombie bride, <laughs> a zombie bride in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things? And there was this, there was this pause on the phone. And then she just went, oh, my God. She said, you're the first person that has ever asked me about that, <laughs> that film. And that was, you know, what, 40 years later? And then I said, well, you know, what do you remember about it? And she said, well, give me a few days and I'll put some stuff down in writing. 5,000 words she sent me. 5,000 words of everything from how she got on with the people to how she was buried in the ground, you know, by, you know, and it was just insane, you know, to the, to the, the, the like the premiere quote unquote that they did that she went to where they had people dressed up on on chains zombies on chains you know outside the driving you know it was and again that's when I get the buzz Mike you know when you think this woman's out of, and she was so excited to talk to me about it because she's like you know nobody's ever heard of the film let alone talk to me about it and there's me like getting like a kid in a candy store you know sort of a, because I'm talking to this woman who was in the film for about twenty seconds. You know, in a, you know, in a in a sort of horror, in a cheap ass horror film, you know, in 1971. You know, but but that's why we do it, isn't it? That is that is why we do it because we're so passionate about it. So, in three years from now, when all of this legal stuff just goes away, something happens, and suddenly all the dominoes fall, and you can release Full Circle, get it restored, beautiful 4K. If they're even doing 4K, it might be I don't know 8K by then. Are you going to also put together like a companion book with all of these interviews and things that you've done for research? I'm toying with the idea. I might have to go down like the self-publishing route. Like, right? to be honest, I, I, and, 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 and this is no word of a lie now. I actually have at the house what is referred to as the full circle cupboard, 
because there is so much stuff in there. I mean, my wife loves it because I'll be just trawling the internet for, oh my God, I found the Argentinian one sheet for it, but it's $140 or something. And she'll be like, right, that's your Christmas present. You know, and, and she, she absolutely loves it. You know, and I've got, I mean, I've got, I've got more stuff on that film than, as I say, any, you know, I could open a probably art gallery, you know, for the, for the amount of, stills and lobby cards and stuff i've sort of gotten and they're not easy to come by because the film had such a small release but but yeah i mean i've got french posters italian posters mexican posters argentinian posters the american one you know the british one the french one you know and it, and it's and and yeah I, I would love to put a book together funnily enough i went to the company you know hemlock and said what about a book on black on full circle? And I got the same response when I originally pitched my black Christmas book idea, Mike. But interestingly enough, there is somebody else. I think he was currently working on a, on a, um, on a book about black Christmas. I think uh, sort of somebody I know, which is going to come out at some stage in the future, possibly. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'm almost, I'm, I'm almost bunkering down and saying, right, this film is going to get released. And then all this stuff is going to be special features you know, on, 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 on the Blu-ray, you know, whether it's be scanning this stuff in as a gallery or just going back to these people and saying, well, you were kind enough to talk to me before. Can we do something on camera now? You know, nearly, nearly everybody has said yes, you know, because, you know, when I, when I speak to the people, I always tell them why I'm, you know, why am I doing this? You know, it's because I want to re-release it. And the, the BFI, which is the British Film Institute over here, which is like the, the government film body, if you like, They've said, they, you know, if it gets sorted, they want to show it, they want to screen it, you know, and, and yeah, so, I, you know, I remember joking to somebody, I think it was, I can't remember who I was talking about, I joked somebody once, I said, you know, if I ever managed to pull this off, then this is going on my headstone, you know, that it's like, so here lies Simon Fitzjohn, you know, a very sad horror fan, but this was the guy that got Full Circle re-released, you know, and then people can come and pay their respects in years to come because, yeah. You know, it's 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 just crazy how films can get forgotten like that. You know, and thankfully, Black Christmas didn't happen. It didn't happen because it did get picked up. It did get DVD'd. It did get Blu-rayed. You know, even the soundtrack came out on vinyl. Got a re-release. One of these like Death Waltz records or whoever it was that re- was released it, and and so that gets the appreciation it deserves. And you know, I've I'm yeah, I've always that's I've always seen. I've never really been interested in talking and writing about new films. You know, it's always how obscure a film can I get away with that the magazine will say, yeah, you can write about that. Simon Fitzchan, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Yeah, no pleasure. I enjoy your podcast, Mike, and it's great, you know, real thrill to be part of it, to be honest. So yeah, thanks for inviting me. Next up, let's hear from the actor that played Chris, Mr. Art Hindle. How did you decide that you wanted to be an actor? I have to give uh, some credit to my mom, who always, uh, when I was a teenager, she always told me that I should be an actor. I guess I used to tell her stories, and I used to, uh, I used, she loved movies. That's how I, I, I became, fell in love with movies, but she used to take me to the movies all the time, and she had asthma, so she didn't do well in theaters anymore so she couldn't really go to the movies anymore but uh i would go and then i would come home and tell her the what happened in the movie and and uh, she would laugh until she had a, an asthma attack and but she'd always tell me that she thought i should be an actor because i'm 
I portray the characters so well and all that kind of stuff. And the other reason was that I had an uncle who was an actor. He was a Canadian actor who had some success in, in the States, worked with Kirk Douglas and in a film called Lonely Are the Brave. That was uh, that was one of Kirk Douglas's actually favorite movies that he did. That, and although he was of no help to me, there was no nepotism involved. It's, it's nice to know that, you know, somebody fairly close to you succeeded and, you know, it can be encouraging, you know. One year I was getting an award for something in, in Canadian television and a young man came up to me who was part of a comedy group called the Kids in the Hall. Dave Foley, if you know who that is. Dave came up to me. I didn't know who he was, actually. I, I'd been living in L.A. for a long, long time at that point and didn't even know the kids in the hall or anything like that. And, but anyway, they won an award that night. And he came up to me afterwards and with the award and he said he owed it to me. And I I was taken aback. I you know, didn't even know him. And I said, how do how do uh, how do you figure that? And he said, well, when I was a kid, I wanted to be in show business and and thought it was so far away and so remote. He said, but your kids, and I had I had four of them at the time, and they lived in a small town in Ontario. I, when I moved to L.A., I, I, I was separated from their mother and them, and I, I was worried about them living in the big city, and they had responded so well when I lived in a small town for a summer doing Stratford, doing Shakespeare, you know, Stratford Festival. We decided that they might do well in a small town. So they lived in a small town. I used to visit them quite often and get them all together and head over to the local park. And there'd be other kids there. And I'd organize little baseball games and sports and things like that and fun stuff. And uh, Dave Foley was one of those little kids. And he said he realized then that, gee, show business isn't that far away. I can almost reach out and touch it. So he says that that encouraged him to think that he could he could do it. So so I guess that's how I got started in it. You know, I kind of went through trying to figure out the way to do it. It was in Toronto back in those days, and this was late 60s, 68 to be exact. I was a stockbroker. I was a very successful stockbroker, but a very unhappy stockbroker. And one day I saw one night I saw a play and just decided if I don't do it now or don't try it now and I'll never try it. So I went back to that same theater company and, and told them, I said, I want to be an actor. I'm willing to do anything. And, and they said, anything. I said, anything. And they said, well, go here, go to this address next week and you can get going. The guy there will tell you what to do. So I thought, Oh, that's easy. So I went back to the office the next day and told everybody I was leaving. I was going to be an actor. And I showed up at this place and uh, basically I, the guy said, "Oh, you're the guy who wants to be an actor." I said, "Yeah." Well, he says, "I said you tell you're going to tell me what to do." He says, "Yeah, grab a shovel." And what we were going to do was clean out an old building that had been closed for a few years, and they had bought it, and they were going to turn it into a theater. So we had to go in there and clean out all the whatever's been in the building for about a few years that's been closed, including a lot of residue from animals and things like that. So that's kind of how I started. But you have to start somewhere, and that was it. And fortunately, I got involved with a, uh, a terrific uh, acting teacher who had worked at the uh, actor studio in New York but had uh, emigrated to Canada because he'd fallen in love with a Canadian girl. And uh, and he set up 
class and I got involved in that. And then he set up a professional class and, and invited me to be a part of that. And uh, so that really kickstarted my career in terms of developing my talent and uh, being able to go out and get what few parts there were in, in Toronto in those days. There weren't many films or television roles going on. There was a lot of theater, which I did, but that was about it. Well, it seems like the early 70s is when you really started to make your mark. Things like The Proud Rider and Foxy Lady and Face Off all coming out in 71. I mean, what was that like for you to just suddenly break onto the scene? It didn't involve a lot of money, Mike, that's for sure. You know, they, they, you didn't get paid a lot. The, the Proud Rider was a turned out to be a non-union film, which I didn't know, and I didn't I didn't even know about my union, uh, which appears called Actra. I didn't know that they actually even oversaw movies, I, because their, their acronym stood for the Association of Canadian Television and Radio Artists, and they didn't mention movies. They now do. It's, it stands for the Association of Canadian Cinema, Television, Radio Artists. So I ended up, I did the film, and then I sort of ended up getting suspended for three months from, from my union for doing that. It was a non-union film. It was a chance to do something. It was actually working with a real motorcycle gang. It was a very tough shoot. And I think I forget, I, I think I only got like a few hundred dollars a week. And then Foxy Lady was really only a couple of days work, as I remember. That was Ivan Reitman, one of Ivan Reitman's first films. And then Face Off was really, I think I got just paid scale for that or, you know, minimum. But it, I did work for about two and a half months on that one. So that was a bit better. And uh, But then basically it was the odd television show, very odd television show, and mostly theater. Commercials, we were doing a lot of commercials in those days. Industrial movies, you know, I did one for Uniroyal where I was the the young man who didn't put rain tires on his car and eventually I have an accident and kill my girlfriend, you know, that kind of thing. I wish I could find that film. It's, I think it's about 15 minutes long, but I have had no success, you know? So that's about it. That's, that, that was kind of it. If you, in fact, if you look at my, uh, my IMDB page, I think it, you know, it's very telling. I think my, the first, few years of my work, say from 71 to 74, I think there's one, two, three, I think there's six, six or seven credits in that time. And then when I moved to California in seven, late 74, so starting with Police Story, I think I matched everything in two years down there, everything I'd done the previous six years. And actually, connected to Black Black Christmas, Margot Kidder, who I met on Black Christmas, talked to me one time, and she thought I was from the States, and I told her I was from Toronto. She said, do you work here often? I said, there's not much work, Margot. And she said, you should, you should move to L.A. She said, you, you'd work all the time. So she was right, and I thought I'd try it. Can you tell me, how did you get the role for Black Christmas? I auditioned for Bob Clark. I actually, there wasn't, <laughs> for the part of Chris Hayden, there was, wasn't any sort of bunch of lines in a scene where I could audition for him. So I actually read the uh, part of Peter, 
played by Tier Delay. And Bob kind of flattered me after I finished reading the scene. He kind of shook his head and I, I said, I can do it better. I can do it better. You know, and he said, no, no. He said, you did it great. He said, I, I kind of wish you were doing it. He says, but uh, we've had to hire an American to, for, to get some publicity and stuff like that. And so we've hired a very good actor in Cure Delay. So, but he did, Olivia Hussey was coming back from not having worked for a couple of years, done any acting and she was nervous. So she asked Bob if she could rehearse quite a bit ahead of time. So Kier couldn't make it up to Toronto. So Olivia had me rehearse with her. So she'd feel more comfortable. What was that experience like for you being in Black Christmas? You know, it was like going to school, really. First of all, we had the house, it seems to me, for a week or two before we actually started filming in it. And that's where we started rehearsing, Olivia and I, with Bob. And every so often, somebody would come to be interviewed by Bob for job on the film, pound guy or whomever, you know, camera guy or whatever. So I, Bob was hilarious. He would uh, he would have them come in and do the uh, do the meeting, and and Olivia and I would just sit there. Or I see, I think sometimes Olivia excused herself to go off and do something, but Bob would let me just sit there and listen to the conversation. So. I learned a hell of a lot. What and and one of the things I did learn very clearly was Bob Clark could probably play at any craft on a film set, from sound to camera to lighting to to craft service, whatever. He he could do it all. And uh, in fact, there were sometimes I remember talking with he was talking to the sound guy. And if you remember in Black Christmas, there's a there's a scene where there's a choir singing at the front door, and he wanted a kind of a sound special effect there, and he was talking to the sound guy about it, and the sound guy wasn't sure how he could do what Bob wanted, and Bob gave him a suggestion. I don't I don't remember the you know technically what it was, but he said something about he could put the rewire the rheostat into the Ziazon and then feed it back into the Boobop, you know, and, and the sound guy sat there for about a half a minute kind of picturing that, and he said, you know, you're right, we could do it that way. You know, it was it was amazing, and uh, Bob was very open and uh, and very open with me. And you know, sometimes after somebody'd leave, he'd talk to me about that stuff. So, you know, it really encouraged me. And and I always said someday, I you know, I want to I want to do what Bob Clark does, which is direct. And eventually, I did get a chance to do that, but that was many years later. So I take it you two got along since you would go on to work with him in at least one other film, if not more. Yeah, I did. I did a few films with him. I did his biggest film, Porky's. And uh, also we did one down at Dino De Laurentiis' studio in North Carolina. Uh, It was called From the Hip. And he was always trying to get me into his films. And uh, yeah, eventually... Bob for a while there didn't work at all. He he couldn't get any of his films off the ground. You know, he was trying. He wanted me for the uh, the dad in Christmas Story. The powers that be wanted Darren McGavin, and that was I think that was actually a great idea. I think Darren probably did a better job than I probably would have done. I think he was great in it. Even if there wasn't a role for me, he would have me do screen tests with the actresses who were up for parts and things like that in it. You know. In different films that he did. 
So we got along quite well. We were good friends, and it was tragic for those of us who knew Bob that we we lost him and his uh, his son that uh, in that terrible accident. I have to ask you about the coat. <laughs> the coat, okay. It's actually my coat. I think my mom gave it to me, as a matter of fact, because I don't suffer winter very well. I'm not a a winter guy. I never skated, which was ironic because I did one of Canada's great hockey films, playing the best hockey player in the world, the number one draft choice. So that took a lot of acting. But she gave me that coat because I, I always suffered in the winter. And and so I used it in that in, in, in Black Christmas. Their wardrobe budget was small. And also I used it in the hockey movie too as well. I wore it in the hockey movie. So it got a lot of use and uh, it's still sitting around someplace in, in my house here. Although I'd never wear it because, you know, because of PETA, you know, they're liable to attack me with it. Yeah, you don't want red paint all over you. No, but it came in handy, especially that uh, the scene where we were in the park searching for my girlfriend was missing. That was actually John Saxon's first night, as you might have might know from some of the stories that have been told, how he replaced Edmund O'Brien in the role of the uh, detective and did it kind of last minute. And he flew in from L.A. and arrived and went directly to the set and did that, that scene in the park where Olivia and I, and I think Andrea Martin, I think she's there too, were kind of gathered around a barrel that's kind of got burning some burning some stuff so we're keeping warm and it was in the uh, there's a big park here it's kind of like central park in new york it's called high park and we were filming there and it was an incredibly bitter cold night so that coat came in handy livia wasn't used to the temperature either and i was able to open it up and and put put kind of put my arms around her and put the coat around her <laughs> keep her warm yeah, I was curious how much of that was acting and how much of that was, it's bitterly cold out here. It was wonderful acting, pretending to, it looked like we're, we were really cold, wasn't it? <laughs> we were, it was, it was terrible. Although, funny enough, that, uh, that winter, there wasn't much snow that winter. And uh, so any snow you see around the, uh, the house is, is, is some kind of weird uh, foam that they, they hired somebody to lay down and, you know, we, if you walk through it, you know, you'd end up, <laughs> you kind of look down and it looks like you've got a kind of a white pudding around the bottom of your shoes. I heard a rumor that they wanted to do reshoots and bring you back and have you be Billy the murderer at the end. No, I, I never heard that. I mean, not, not only have I never heard that rumor, but I, I don't think it's true. It was never, never passed by me. It can't be me, first of all, because... In the last scene, which is one continuous take, I'm I'm sitting in the bedroom taking care of Olivia, and then the camera tracks down the hallway to the uh, attic door that starts to swing open. That's where I am. I'm with Jesse in the bedroom, and that that's trap door is starting to swing open. But we know nothing's going to happen to Jesse, Jess, because because I'm there with her. But there's been lots of talk about about sequels. People have talked to Olivia and I, and. Uh, about sequels, although John's now gone. There's a lot of people gone from that, you know. Nothing's happened. I know it came close a few times. They were going to have me and Olivia in the new film years later, and but never happened. 
I, th- I think it's nice to leave it the way it is anyway, you know? I mean, even remakes uh, for this film have not succeeded, you know? I haven't seen any of them, so I don't know. I'm just, just what I'm told, you know? People say, don't go and see it. Yeah, I don't imagine it's something you would rush out and see. No, although I understand Andrea Martin was in one of them. And I think, in fact, that one, I think it was done on the West Coast someplace, if I'm not mistaken. I think, I think they even gave Bob Clark an executive producer credit on it. Although Bob told me that he wasn't very much involved in it day to day or week to week or month to month. It's just, uh, I guess it was just to kind of buy his support, you know? From what I understand, it was a huge hit when it came out, at least in Canada. I don't know about that. When it came out in Canada, I wasn't here. We finished filming it in the late winter, maybe February, March in there of 74. And by the end of November, by the end of 74, I was living in Los Angeles. I had moved. I decided to take a chance and move to Los Angeles. So I accumulated as much cash as I could. I sold my I had a classical Porsche. I sold that. I I even drove cab for a couple of months. I went to a cab company and told them I, I know how much money they expect from their car every day. So I will guarantee that if you give me the car 24-7. So I used it both as a, a cab. I got my license. And, uh, and also I used it for personal transportation or for taking my kids to the movies and things like that or taking my girl on a date. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, wasn't adverse to picking up a fare while I was doing that at the same time. So, but I needed as much cash as I, because I wasn't sure how long I, when I was going to be able to work in, in, in LA, you know, it was, it was kind of a jump with both feet and see what happens, you know. But ultimately, you were very successful. I was, ultimately. It took, it, uh, there was some setbacks. I know almost right away I, I, I auditioned for and was told by the director that I got a, I got the lead and, in a film that was a sequel to a big hit film called Macon County Line that was produced by Max Baer, who was Jethro in Beverly Hillbillies. And they were doing a sequel called Return to Macon County. And it was done by American International Pictures. And so the, the director wanted me to, it was a kind of a buddy movie. The director wanted me to read with other actors that he, they might hire. So I did that for a couple of weeks. And then one day he phoned me. He said, okay, he says, I'm bringing the two selections, you and the other guy in to meet the the executive producer, the guy that owns AIP. So I went in there and he said, the guy, little short guy with a cigar, he says, so I understand you're going to be working for me. And I, I jokingly said, I think I've been working for you without any pay. And the director was behind him and he was waving his hand, you know, like, no, no. The next day he phoned me, he said, the guy doesn't like you. He doesn't like your joke. And so we're going to hire this other guy, his insistence. He, he's, he has the final word. So we're going to hire this guy, Nick Nolte. So off they went. So a, few, a couple of months later, though, I run into this guy accidentally, the director. He says, what are you doing, Art? He says, well, I'm, I said, I'm actually trying to find a house to live in because I'm tired of living in these uh, apartment hotels and stuff like that. Don't do well in them. And he says, that's a coincidence. He says, I just bought a house that's right next door to me. I was worried about some hippies that were living in it that were going to burn down. So why don't you come and live there? He says, I bought the house. 
And uh, I said, oh, what would the rent be? And he said, for you, nothing. So we ended up very good friends, and, and it, I ended up living there. I think I ended up there about four four years, and I didn't pay any rent. So that was lucky. And then, you know, and then I started getting getting some gigs, you know, like I think my first one down there was Police Story. And then Starsky and Hutch, I think. I was on the first season of Starsky and Hutch. And I think my first Hollywood movie was a, a movie called Small Town in Texas. Susan George and Bo Hopkins and Timothy Bottoms. So that was kind of fun. And then I did actually did a, a really well-received movie called Law and Order, which has nothing to do with the successful series later on. But that was with Darren McGavin, who played my father. And that got a lot of good reviews, and uh, that kind of set me up. And, you know, I did every... I got a, ended up doing a series with uh, Raymond Burr called Kingston Confidential and so on and so forth. So it kept going like that. It was It was good. Good times. One of the first times I remember seeing you in movies was Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, that was that was a big one. That was one I really really enjoyed, and and working with Brooke Brooke Adams and uh, Leonard Nimoy and Jeff Goldblum. That that was great. How was Philip Kaufman to work with? Oh, fabulous, fabulous guy. He very relaxed, easygoing, sharp, great ideas. Listen to your ideas. The thing, one of the things I liked about that, of all things, was not just Phil and uh, Jeff and, and Leonard Nimoy and Brooke. Although at that time, I guess Donald Southern was going through something. I don't know what, but he and I didn't kind of hit it up. But that's okay. But the great thing about that was working with the cinematographer Michael Chapman. He was fabulous, and I remember one time he used to sort of be attached to Phil Kaufman's hips, you know, and, and he was always right in the middle of rehearsals and watching and all that kind of stuff. And so one day he's, we're working on something and he says to me, Art, can you move this way really slowly when you do that thing? And I said, sure, Mike, but how come? He said, I'm changing the light subtly at that moment to accentuate the mood that you're in or the mood you're going to go into. I thought, oh my God, that's that's crazy. That, you know, but it's probably something that, you know, cinematographers have been doing forever, but it was something new for me, you know? I mean, he's great. He's, he did Taxi Driver, he did Raging Bull, The Wanderers, you know, I think he did some of, uh, I don't know if you remember, The Last Detail. Oh yeah, the, was that Hal Ashby? Ashby, written by Robert Town, and it was him and Otis Young and Randy Quaid, and they're delivering Randy Quaid back to the stockade or something like that. They actually shot, I think they shot some of that in Toronto, as a matter of fact. Anyway, Michael Chapman was great. Working with him was fabulous. You work in Toronto, or you work in Canada, you move away, you go down to L.A., and then at some point... Toronto and Canada becomes Hollywood North. When does that happen? Well, it partially happened because the uh, the Canadian government started handing out uh, tax credits and things like that. Really tried to promote the industry. They saw a good thing when they they had it when these they came up here and spent uh, you know spent two or three million dollars in 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 Canada. 
seemed like a good idea, so they they offered them tax credits, and they're still doing it. And and it's, I, I think, in fact, there's so much work here in in Canada and Toronto, particularly in Vancouver, of course, that if there had been this much work in Toronto back in nineteen in 1974, I probably wouldn't have left. I probably wouldn't have done a lot of the things I did in the States. I would have had a pretty good career up here. Uh, I know a lot of my uh, peer group who stayed here and worked did well. I mean, they did well considering they were in Canada, let's put it that way. And and they certainly have a name for themselves up here. Although although I just, I just posted a face on Facebook, I posted three of Canada's leading actors in a photograph that I took where I was with them and they were all interacting with me and they're all in a line. And I had one American friend say to me, who are they? They're actors I know, but who are they? You know, all three of them have received what's called the order of Canada, which is like, I don't know the, the equivalency in the States, but it's the highest honor you can get in Canada, you know? So they're, you know, they're all name actors up here, but not so much known down in the States. The other thing that kind of went against me in Canada was my looks weren't conducive to getting roles up here because they like, they, they, as Margot Kidder said, you know, I'm the perfect boy next door with my looks in those days. Whereas up here, they wanted the mechanic next door. They wanted a kind of a, a kind of a rougher visage type guy. They wanted to kind of character young guys and things like that. And it was always tough for me to get, it always worked against me. They thought it might be a, a little too good looking in some ways places. So in LA, you know, they, they, that was, that was what they wanted down there. You know, I loved it because the casting people and everybody, they didn't know if you were, were, weren't, if you were the next Clark Gable, you know, so they treated you really well. They used to send scripts to my house and it was great. Total opposite up here. You know, you, Sometimes you'd go to waiting rooms here back. This is back then. You'd go to waiting rooms and there wouldn't even be any chairs for you to sit and wait. You know, I remember for some commercials, we'd all be sitting, you know, be a big cattle call. And we'd all be sort of sitting on the floor with our backs to the walls. And I remember, I, I can remember one particular one looking down the line of people and seeing Aykroyd, Eugene Levy, Gilda Radner, Martin Short. Catherine O'Hara, and so on and so forth. You know, just a gang of people there, just all just trying to get get into some probably a beer commercial. That's what it was back in the day. It was pretty rough, but but it was like night and day in Los Angeles and Hollywood. And I love the weather. How can I go wrong? Oh my, it's perfect for me. I didn't even need. I didn't need my fur coat. Was the Clone Master? Was that your first leading role? In a way, I guess you could say it was. You know, I was number one on the call sheet. Clone Master. Yeah, I guess it was. I guess it was. It was It was a pilot, of course. How many clones did you have? 13? That just happens to be, you know, half a season, right? You were kind of Orphan Black before Orphan Black happened. That's exactly right, yeah. You know, the, I think in those days, they usually have 25, 26 shows in a season. So you would have had those those characters, those clones would have, and they all had different personalities, and that was going to be the plan that you know there would be, they were scattered to the four winds. That was the plan at the end of the movie, and but they communicate mentally with each other, 
and all that kind of stuff. So all kinds of plans for dramatic things happening around the country and maybe even around the world. I don't know, but it never got to happen, you know. But I guess you're right. I guess that was kind of my first lead role in in Hollywood. Was it kind of the same thing for The Power Within? Was that a pilot as well? It was. Yes, it was. That was Aaron Spelling, and that was just a lot of money. It was a lot of money, and that was right after. I just finished shooting The Brood in Toronto, and that was an accident, accidental that I did that because I was actually, I was actually up here in Toronto. My girlfriend had gotten a job in Canada on a film. I was up in Toronto visiting her. It's kind of incestuous because she was up here doing a film with the director who had done Face Off, the Hawk, my hockey movie. And you might even know the movie, and I'm just trying to find it here. It was called, it was a sci-fi movie, and it was called The Shape of Things to Come. Kind of obscure. Uh, but she was up here doing that, and out of the blue, somebody got touched with me and asked, told me that David Cronenberg wanted to see me. Heard I was in town. He'd like to meet me. Yeah, Shape of Things to Come with Jack Palance, Carol Lindley, Barry Morse, John Ireland. Anyway, I went to see David Cronenberg, and he basically, all he asked me was if it was true that my brother was Langhindle, who was a, he was a motorcycle racer, very well-known motorcycle racer. And I said, yeah, he's my brother. And he says, oh, great. He says, so do you want to do this film? And... You know, it, I was in town, so I thought to myself, "Hey, sure, why not?" It was, but it was gruesome. It was gruesome, and it wasn't wasn't much money. You know, I used to call myself the king of the indies. You know, it wasn't much money at all. But then, got back to Hollywood, and my agent called me with the offer from Aaron Spelling for the Man, the Power Within, which also had another title, I think, called uh, Man with the Power. It was kind of a ridiculous thing. The guy. The guy, the doctor finds out, explains that he was exposed to a nuclear blast. His, his mom was in Nevada when the nuclear blast happened. She was pregnant. He got a dose of radiation from that. And then one night he's changing a tire in a storm and he gets hit by lightning. He's taken to the hospital and then suddenly he has this power in him that and they're able to put a device on his wrist to control the power within. So then he can turn it on and off with this thing and, and zap people. I guess that was going to be a pilot, too. It was a pilot, but it didn't go. How did the pandemic affect you? Because you, once you started working, it feels like you never stopped. It affected me last year in the sense that while we were in the grips of it, uh, a couple of things got canceled. A series I was doing, they canceled that season. And then I was supposed to do a film. I canceled that because it started in mid-March. And then, but then in, in September, this other series came up and I was able to do that. And that was kind of an interesting premise for a, for a series. It was on the Sci-Fi Channel and was called Surrealistic like surreal, like, ooh, and then a state. And it was about a, an, a real estate company who can get rid of 
ghosts, exercises ghosts and spirits out of the house so that the house can be sold. I mean, that's a simplistic explanation for it, but it was a lot, a lot darker and deeper than that. And it had some interesting things like, for instance, the lead character, the lead guy who owns the, the thing at the end of some of the shows, he, he's, he ends up, he's talking to his dad. The only problem is his dad has passed away, but he has this ability to, to see and talk to people that are dead, basically. Anyway, I played the dad. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we're seeing if that gets picked up. I think they did eight episodes, but that was good. And then, uh, and then this year it's been pretty busy. I've been doing, I've been done uh, three films, and I did that series that they canceled last year. Got picked up, so I did that, and and now I'm I'm kind of taking a break and kind of looking at things that they're sending me and trying to figure out because it's really. You know, one thing I did find out from doing all that work is it's it's it, the set isn't the same as what it used to be. I used to love the set, and actually, I always joke that a set is my Disneyland, and it's it's become less so now because, particularly on this one series, well, on the series we're wearing masks and shields, even for rehearsals, and this one series that <clears throat> is a, kind of a kids show. It's called Holly Hobby. We were we had to wear two masks and a shield, even in rehearsals, which which was awful. So it's just not as much fun as it is. So I'm just kind of, you know, at this point in my life, like I I'm a, have the ability to be able to say no or sit back and relax and wait for something. You know, all of the stuff that you've been doing lately is this all in your backyard? Is this all Canadian stuff? Yeah, I have a couple of kids. Well, grown, they're grown adults, and one has two two kids of her own. I have two kids that live in Southern California. One is an actor, but he's also taking studying law. My youngest, his name is Zeke Hindle, and he's really become kind of an entrepreneur. He's he's producing his own stuff. He's writing, acting, producing, directing, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I had to laugh at him because he said to me one day, he was actually flew me down to be in his his movie, one of his movies. And this is, you'd only been acting for maybe a year and a half or two years, and he's doing this damn thing. And he says to me, he says, I don't, I don't seem to be getting anywhere. Like, you know, you know, you know, and I said, well, you know what I think you're mistakenly doing is you're comparing your career to my career. I said, and let me tell you something. My first two years in the business, I had trouble convincing people I was even an actor. You know, I I started in 1968. I didn't do Proud Rider, my first acting job until 1970. And then while I was doing that, I did a little, I did that Foxy Lady on on a couple of my days off from Proud Rider. And then the next thing I did face off wasn't until 1971. So three years later, I mean, you're you know, you're way ahead of me and you're producing all your stuff. You know, back in the day, we, to produce something, we would have had to, you know, get big lights and get a big, rent a big camera and everything you guys can do it with your cameras practically in your hand, you know? So I said, you can't compare your career with what my career became, you know? So don't do that to yourself, you know? I mean, has he had to shovel up stuff out of an old building? <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> yeah. And the funny thing was with that, after we built this the theater and the stage and the dressing rooms, and I did all that, and I was basically their gopher, and I was working for no money. I was I was living off, made a ton of money as a stockbroker. My wife was thinking of leaving me, and, and I had, because I had we had two kids and a third on the way when I did this. She thought I was insane. One day I came into you know into the theater and. You know, said, do I have to, you want me to go get your coffees, donuts? This is the thing I did kind of, you know, go for, what can I do? And they said, no, nothing to do. Why don't you go in and watch a rehearsal, right? And I went into, so I went, I said, can I do that? And they said, yeah. So I snuck in and I was watching it there in the dark and and they were rehearsing. And what that director was having a really, really bad day. He was yelling at the actors and grabbing them by the arm and shoving it up here and showing them what he wanted and twisting their heads and. And I, I didn't, I said it's not what I, what I wanted to do. And I just took off and ran out of the theater and never came back. They must have wondered what happened to me. That, that was that. And then I found that uh, actor studio guy who had moved up to Canada and that changed the whole course of my career. I might have, I might have even stopped acting at that point, but somebody said, you should go see this guy. So I did. And he saw something in me and, and, you know, so it was all good. Well, Art, thank you so much for your time. This was great. I'm so glad that we were finally able to connect. Yeah, I did. We didn't stay on Black Christmas very often, but but that's okay. Last but not least, let's hear from David Hastings and Paul Downey, the authors of It's Me, Billy, Black Christmas Revisited, which is available January 2022. Where do you guys know each other from originally? Dave's an independent filmmaker based in the West Midlands. We're, ba- we're both based probably about 40 miles from each other. But uh, I run a, I run a, like a website that does like horror views and you know, interviews and all the like. And David done a, a Halloween fan film called uh, One Good Scare, I think it was, which is based on a comic book, which is a kind of an adaptation of the Halloween universe. And we'd kind of got in touch and done an interview and obviously found out that we kind of had this mutual appreciation for the Halloween series. I mean, Dave's like a, he's like on the next level to me in terms of Halloween knows things that I don't I couldn't even fathom but at the same time we found out just just for getting to know each other and becoming friends and you know attending like film screening conventions things like that that we both really enjoyed Black Christmas and to be honest that book thing never kind of come up until about it was around uh, 2019 it was around the tail end of 2019 we'd worked together creating a 40th anniversary fan documentary around Halloween's anniversary with it for 2018. Just a nice thing to do. And I kind of rallied the troops and then Dave helped to really mold it and put it together and edit it and any films from like insert segments for it. Like, you know, cause he's end of days a filmmaker and I'm not. You always kind of have it in the back of your mind. Oh, you you want to kind of work together. And uh, I'd start together around the tail end of 2019. Dave would ask me about it. I would keep him updated. And then, then like, the year after, he kind of, it might have been 2019, it probably was actually in 2019, Dave said, oh, if you ever need a hand, let me know, and it kind of like, and I quickly realised with the beast that the book became, that I do need a hand, and I need somebody I can kind of trust, that knows their stuff, and just seemed like a really natural fit in terms of what he was going to bring to the project, because he, he immediately had ideas that I hadn't even considered, and, and that was kind of the genesis of it, effectively. I think I just kind of got jealous and muscled in and said, can I help? And you said, yeah, sure, why not? And I was like, okay, 
cool. Let's let's sit down and get an idea together and go from there and see what angles you want to come at it from. I know you wanted to include the remakes. I was more concerned with the original. I, I understand why you wanted to put the remakes in and stuff, but I kind of left you to it for that bit. <laughs> there was a few little tidbits I kind of did, but Paul was kind of the mastermind of everything. I've just kind of been following his lead for the last two years now or something, something like that. That's part of three years, really, I mean, in terms of where it came from, because in, initially all it came from, I was doing some emailing around and I just wanted kind of some uh, Christmas content for my website and, uh, you know, Christmas horror, you know, gets good traffic around this time of year. And uh, I'd spoken in the November, I think it was, it was either 2018 or 2019, I think, to Lynn Griffin, who's uh, one of the stars of the original film. And she was like more than happy. And she did this great interview for me, really detailed. And then um, kind of started to look around about who else I could talk to who hadn't maybe talked about it before. I found out there was contacts for the, the guy who designed the, the poster, you know, the iconic poster of the, uh, you know, Claire with the bag on her head with the wreath. And an actually uncredited screenwriter who'd never talked about the film before. The knowledge was out there, but no one ever felt the need to interview him. And I was like, well, this is an opportunity here, initially for the website. But then when these, when these interviews started accumulating, that was when I found that it really had legs. In. I always find that with, with projects like this, is you get to a point when you when you if you accumulate so much information, which we had, they're like, this is something more than maybe we thought it was. Because initially it was, it was just going to be a series of articles for the website. And then it got to a point where we'd accumulated so many interviews and started doing the research process. Like this is, and this was just on the 74 film at this point. They were like, this has got serious legs. So, you know, we're going to have to, you know, figure out a plan basically. And then, and then, for me, the continuity for adding in 2006 and 2019 was to tell this, basically this 50-year journey, if, if we could, you know, and, and try and give people a timeline that, you know, and, and, and fill in the blanks of areas they might not have been aware of. And because when, when we're covering the remake and also the 2019 film, we go into how they came to be. So, so like the journey of 2006 begins in around 2002, you know, it might have been slightly beforehand, and we tried to go into a bit of detail there. You know, we fill in the blanks in terms of, you know, the VHS era, reasons that people might not have seen Black Christmas in the UK before. So there's, there was so much to go. It was, it was crazy. I mean, I, I never thought when we, when we first started, we, we'd find all these, like, these nuggets of information. And it, putting them together, we're hoping that we'd put this comprehensive guide of the Black Christmas universe effectively together for people to read. You guys are of the age where you were directly affected by the video nasties, correct? You weren't allowed to see a lot of films? We weren't allowed to, but my mom and dad let me. <laughs> That's the difference. My mom and the only one my mom and dad always said no to was the first Elm Street. And the reason being was because there was always the implication the first one of the child molesting the child predator with Freddy, which obviously was left far behind when she got to Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and everything. That's the only one that they kept back from me for a few years. Remember, it was on Channel 4 late one night at 10 o'clock, and I couldn't watch it because I had to go to school the next day. So I recorded it, and I spent all that day at school going, I need to get back into this film. Because I remember just watching that first little bit where you see his shoes, and he's making the the, the knives and the, the glove and everything, and then it just I was like, I need to watch the rest of this film. It's, this is crazy. But I remember the the video nasty stuff. Like We had issues with Child's Play 3 and all kinds of stuff because of we had a I mean it was a, a real tragedy over here we had the, the killing of a, a young lad called Jamie Bolger 
and the newspapers just went ballistic with it. The Daily Mail, of course, all this is filth, it's vile and stuff like that. And they were, it, the interesting thing about the video analysis is a lot of people just thought they got banned outright. They weren't, a lot of them weren't banned. They were just quietly taken off the shelves. So you could see them and find them somewhere every now and again if a video shop just hadn't took them off. But they weren't outright banned. They were just quietly removed banned. But I, I remember the, the video analysis because if I think for me as a horror fan, being quite young as well, I was like, well, I've never wanted to kill anybody. Why, why on earth would I want to hurt somebody because I'm watching a film? That makes no sense whatsoever. And that's why my mom and dad were exactly the same. That's why I watched Hammer Horror films, all the Friday the 13th. I mean, I remember watching Halloween when I was six. It doesn't mean I want to go and put everybody in our street and for all like that and stuff like that. But that seemed to be the primary message from the newspapers and stuff. It was like we were all deviants all of a sudden. And it was just, it was heartbreaking more than anything because. As a horror fan, you always feel like the outsider anyway. So to have this extra kind of pressure of, oh, well, you are really an outsider, you know, wacko. It's kind of like, are we really? I mean, you know, I, I and the beauty of the horror community is I I know so many people in the horror community are some of the best people I've ever met, who are some of the most kindest, you know, caring, happy people I've ever known. And they would go to the ends of the earth to help you. And stuff, you know. So from my experience as a kid to now and stuff and everything, I've never once seen that image of us all being weirdos or freaks and stuff and, and things like that. Do you know what I mean? And, and I just think it was it was a cruel way to kind of categorise and isolate a bunch of people who just like celebrating horror films. You know, I don't know if that I don't know if anybody else feels like that. It's just, you know, I mean I I watch these films going, God, that's amazing. I want to know how they made that stuff. I want to know how Jason takes somebody's head off and it's a prosthetic. You can see it for a few milliseconds. Oh, well, that's cool. I want to do that. I want to make that stuff and be creative and just tell a story and everybody knows it's fictional and stuff like that. But good old daily fail. Was Black Christmas directly affected by that? It's not not effectively by the video nasties because it's kind of, it, even it's like the physical release, as far as we're aware, it's pre the video nasty era. Well, there is a really interesting story which we go into in the book, which was basically the uh, the debut of the film was meant to be. I think it was. Uh, I check the dates, but there was um, a an incident in the UK called the Hungerford Massacre, where basically somebody went a bit bit crazy in an area called Hungerford, you know, as in the Hungerford Massacre. And basically, what happened was that happened on the day that Black Christmas was going to debut on the BBC, I believe, and. Uh, Basically, there's a there's a newspaper article where there was a statement put out that basically they, they said that it was it would be in poor taste for Black Christmas to be shown on that day because of what had happened. Even though that you know the incidents aren't you know it wasn't anything to do with like you know like college campus girls or whatever else. But yeah, not not so much in terms of the video nasties. I think it was just more it was just obscure. I think more than anything because um, the rights holders didn't really until like the the advent of DVD they didn't really push it. There was like, you know, there was Betamax releases of the VHS, there was VHS releases, but they just kind of came and went. It wasn't until really Tartan DVD, which was now like a, a defunct label, took it on and and was working with some like really passionate collaborators, which we got to speak to as well, that the, the film really started to gain traction and gain that, that new audience, which is a lot of the audience you find online now, I think. A lot of the people that we've talked to are people that maybe have discovered it like post-2000. And I think if, if people did know about it before that, it was kind of like so obscure that 
you wouldn't see anything at conventions or anything about it or stuff just be that kind of one of those underground films that people kind of knew about and so forth i think the hungerford massacre was august 1987 i think it was that one i think i think it was around august 1987 they kind of banned guns ever since then if i if i remember right i might be wrong but i know there was a big thing about guns at that point it was a complete no-no across the board but it, but it was i mean you could understand why they they took it off that day by the time you guys decided to start this project black christmas has been out there were there any people that you talked to that were kind of surprised by the amount of fandom that the film had people like lynn griffin and stuff they kind of kept involved in you know supplement material for dvds and blu-ray so i think she's kind of known what it is and stuff but i think i mean i thought who was the the camera operator on the original film, he was quite surprised that we wanted to sit and have a chat with him over Skype and stuff and, and things like that. Because it's, I think, I think for them, they know they made something special. But because this is not like Halloween, where it was mainstream, you know, you've got Nick Castle coming back to play Michael in the new films, a little brief bits and stuff. And, you know, this legacy that goes on for decades and stuff. Because it wasn't as widespread as that. I think it was, like I say, because it was underground film. You know, they knew they'd made something special, but I think that was all they kind of observed of it. And I think now in post-2000 world and stuff, I think a lot of them who are still with us, gladly, know have started to kind of clock on, well, this is actually something that we should be proud of across the board. Bob Clark certainly knew he was, he'd done something special, you know, and, and thankfully so. I mean, it's so sad that Harry, Harry, Harry was taken from us a few years back and stuff. But I, I think Bob Clark knew, and I think John Saxon probably knew, because John Saxon would talk about it, and he would go to some of the screenings and stuff. But you know, some I think some of have kind of just either moved on to other things that, that they're well more well known for, and have kind of just maybe now are starting to see the effect it's had on people since we've had these nice special edition Blu-rays and things that are coming out and stuff. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Paul? A lot of the initial responses we were getting back on emails was that was a million years ago, or you know. Uh, I can't believe you're still talking about that film because we, we talked to a couple of people and, and you know, in, in full, full disclosure, we approached Art Hindle and Kia Delea. They either never got back to us. I think it was Art basically said, I've kind of said all I wanted to say on it. So he'd kind of made his peace with it and moved on. Unfortunately, we did John Saxon before he passed, but we've uh, managed to use archival interviews. You know, somebody like Olivia Hussey was very hard to pin down in terms of, her availability so again luckily she's got an autobiography where she has spoken about the book and she's and to be fair she waxes lyrical in interviews about it we just couldn't get one with it it was just one of the things and but the people that we did talk to i mean it, what's quite interesting about the book is that we managed to like say talk to some of these people like stan cole the editor the production designer karen bromley who haven't really spoken about the film at length before and they have given us so much information i mean the interviews with, with certainly with them them two, uh, Nick Mancuso, who does the voice of Billy, or one of the voices of Billy, and also Albert J. Dunk, who um, Dave alluded to there, they're just like, they're fountains of knowledge. And, and the fact that they can remember even half of this stuff is incredible to me because, you know, I can't remember what happened last week. Did you ever run into that kind of Rashomon situation where you've got different points of view, so different versions of the same story? I think the most notable one that I can think of is uh, we, one of the questions that we asked is basically, who is the eye in the door? 
in one of the in the, in the finale when basically when when Billy comes after Jess, we asked multiple people who is the eye in the door, and to be honest, we get we got different answers from different people, and it's very it's very interesting because there's one little tidbit, and I'll, and I'll share I'll share this with you because we got it from like a, a verified source as such. We spoke to a guy called Dan Duffin, who basically used to run a website in the early 2000s called itsmebilly.com, which was the the resource for Black Christmas fans. And that was one of the websites that, you know, me and Dave, without, ironically, without knowing it, both frequent quite frequently during that time. And I managed to track Dan down and speak to him, but Dan spent a time getting to know Bob Clark, and he'd interviewed him over the years, and he actually spent time on set of the 2006 film, which is a, which is, which is a full chapter in the book where he tells us what it was like on set, but... Um, he spoke to Bob Clark, and and, he, and even he asked him. He says, "Well, who's the eye in the door?" And Bob Clark um, apparently, I, th- I think I can't remember from the story, but he basically he asked him, "Is it you?" And all he did was wink at him, and he walked off. And that's and and, and he never never disclosed to anybody before he passed who the eye in the door was. And that and that's just kind of like it's that kind of like childhood kind, not not childlike. Uh, mischievousness i think out of all the questions that we were asking that one was the one question that we seem to have kind of pinned down across the board i'm not going to say who we we found out it was but the person who was who basically told us who it was was Bert dunk who was a cameraman because he was there on set shooting that actual shot so he was the guy on the floor with the camera on him pointing it at that door with the crack in the door and the eye looking through and there was only one person who we interviewed who said it was somebody different and everybody else across the board that we pretty much spoke to were like adamant that it was this person and there's some reasons why in it as well which they all kind of humorously kind of recall for for, um, a variety of reasons so because it's one of those kind of iconic parts of cinema that eye piece you know whenever you type in black christmas into google it's either there as a gif or it's there as a screensaver or something. And, and it's like, wow, that's quite interesting. And there's so many things you can just point into that kind of image alone. So who is the person who who was it? Because Billy's made up of a lot of different people. That's why I think people seem to forget that. You know, you've got Bert with the bloody camera stuck on his shoulder all the while, climbing up the side of the house. But did a lot of his hand shots and everything. Somebody did the eye. Somebody was, I think they said sometimes that some of the set people or people in the crew were doing the shadows of Billy. And stuff in there because it's quite interesting all the amount of times since this research i've seen billy more in that film than ever before he's always there somewhere if you look there's a bit where they're talking to john saxon and i think it's that one john saxon they're on about he's on about peter the boyfriend if you look in the background he's there he's standing there shadows there billy because the thing is we grew up on this with vhs so you don't see this in standard definition but the, the more you get onto these Blu-rays and stuff like that, you look in the background, he's pretty much there because that's how he's listening in on the calls and stuff, you know, like just like having a wart removed and stuff like that. Clark talks about it quite a lot that he positioned him into certain areas. So Billy's not just an eye in the door or climbing up the side of a house. He's actually there quite a lot. You just need to kind of just look for him and stuff. And I've, I've seen him multiple times in different places now. I've been properly... Not that I did before, but now I know where to look at the stuff. I've been, oh my God, there he is. That was him all. Right, so that's where he's getting that information from. Okay, God, this guy's a wacko. <laughs> One thing we were debating on the show was the death of the little girl. Is that Billy who's responsible for that? Or is there another killer that's out there in the world? General consensus is Billy. 
and it's him on the him on the way to that house. Because it's not just it's not a house that he, he picks like specifically, it's a random house. I think that's that's one of the beauties of this film. It's almost it's like Halloween in a sense. The first one is it is completely random. And that's quite scary, is that you know, somebody could walk outside your house and go, Yeah, I'll go in there and murder them, look, stuff like that, you know, and stuff. I think one of the most chilling parts of that when they you know, they say, Oh, there's a girl that's been killed in the park and you hear all the screaming and the, the search party and you never see the body, you just see the reactions to it. So, you know, whatever they're looking at must be inhumane. And it just adds to that kind of that brutality of, of Billy. So when he's upstairs in the attic and he's having that freak out and he's just, you know, like that, throwing stuff. And, you know, what was he doing with that little girl? Was he doing the same thing? Was he just kind of ripping her apart and stuff? And that's, that's terrifying, you know. And I think Clark always motioned it was the same person. It was Billy. It was just he did that before the attack on the head. So yeah, was not to besmirch other people, but who were your favorite people to talk to? Who was the most delightful interview that you had? I honestly, this is not a, like a political kind of thing. I can't tell anybody apart because everybody had so many different ways of telling us new information, and they were giving, they were telling us with so much passion, and and you know, I almost gratitude in a sense. This film, this little film that they did, you know, nearly fifty years ago, was getting a book made about it, and that is still inspiring people today and people love it still today and you know everybody said stuff with so much enthusiasm and everybody gave the time up everybody was so passionate about all their stories you know because you're talking to actors so you get the actor side of it you're talking to people behind the scenes so you get their reactions to it you're talking to Karen Bromley so she's talking about how she worked with Bob to create an overall look of the film and why there's certain reds and greens and stuff so for, for me as a filmmaker you know, I find that really interesting, like from both sides of the camera and stuff. So I, everybody was that unique that I couldn't pick somebody out. But that's not me kind of BSing and stuff. I just, there was so much information being given in it from everybody that it was just a joy to kind of hear it in any way, shape or form that we were getting it. It was really nice in terms of the conversations that we had. We had uh, Skype conversations with, with Bert Dunk and Nick Mancuso, which were great. Bert Dunk was was particularly fascinating because he showed us production schedules that he had kept from the film, and he still got them. He still got them in his office, and it was like, and I could see Dave's eyes just light up, like when he just brought them out of this like this crusty old folder at the back of the, the room. I was like, you had, you've been sitting on these for nearly fifty years, and just it was just fascinating. And, and and again, he was just really he was very knowledgeable, but also at the same time. Like Dave said, it's that it's that era, it's that era of gratitude, and and I, and I I personally think that you know if if Bob Clark was still with us today, he would wax lyrical about this film now because I think he will have understood its legacy. Where maybe fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, he might not have got it. I mean, he might have known that he made a great film, but at the same time, he might not have understood the effect it's had on the on the genre and you know in cinema. Really, you know, it's crazy. I think social media and the internet have helped this film a lot. Because, like I say, like there's so many there's little fan groups out there on Facebook and stuff, and people are starting to realise this film that they liked, that they thought was, you know, this underground little, you know, brilliant film, has actually got more people around the world that are also loving it for exactly the same reason, and stuff. So I, I think the internet's had a, a massive, had a massive way of, of opening its, its, its legacy you know, and turning it into an even bigger cult film than it is now. Like, I know now that, like, in the last 
15 years or so, I mean, I certainly have done this, is, is my traditional Christmas Eve is watching that film. Regardless, I, I just I have to watch that film on Christmas Eve with a glass of wine or something or a red 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 wine just on a barber and stuff, just on a bar and you know and <laughs> and and just and oh, yeah it's a big glass and just just take it in for Christmas and stuff you know and then then I'll watch it on Christmas Day night again even though I watched it 24 hours earlier I can't get enough of this film at this time of the year I just think it fits in perfectly when you put your tree out. You've got your decorations up. You've got the lights off, you know. So you've got if you've got a fire at home, you can see all the shadows at the wall and everything stuff, just like in the film. You're looking for Billy's shadow somewhere and everything in the background. Just adds to it so much. I find it I find it very difficult to watch this film in July. You try watching this film in July, it's weird. It's weird. It's weird when it's still light outside and everything. It's it's crazy. This time of the year, it's just it's just perfect. It's perfect to film anyway, but in terms of watching it and when to watch it this this time of the year, you can't can't go wrong with it. I'm a bit strange in the sense that I know we spoke about this, but I, I haven't really watched the film since we've watched it to enjoy it in, in three years now. So I'm quite looking forward to watching it this year because every time we were watching it, we went through commentaries and we went through and we analysed it. We were looking at scenes and then it was very arduous and, it, and you don't enjoy a film when you're doing something like that because it's very meticulous. It's a, you know it's 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 an exercise. Whereas now we're kind of done with it. Like the other day, I watched uh, Black Christmas two thousand and six. Just and I just had it on. You know, just I kind of just had it on and just kind of like watched it. In a sense, the more surprising things that you found while you're doing your research. I think for me, I'm a bit of a sucker for uh, troubled productions. And seventy four seemed to go like a dream, but the other two didn't. Um, and we go into quite detail in terms of the 2006 and 2019 films and basically what went wrong in, in the sense that, and I found them stories, they, like like Dave alluded to earlier, um, I kind of like took the lead on on them and he kind of just like added bits in here and there and obviously made sure that everyone's kind of like, you know, making narrative sense. Talking to a lot of people from them sets was a real eye opener uh, in terms of the way that Hollywood works, that, you know, the way that the system's changed because, they come in very in very different cycles, but they're also quite the same in the sense that the 2006 film was part of the kind of the 2000s remake cycle. We've got Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and then when 2019 comes around, it's off the back of Halloween making this massive hit at the box office with like a, a like a fast forward sequel, and it's almost like Blumhouse trying to cash in, and it's a very rushed production. There was a lot of problems on set. You know, the, the writers and the director were under a lot of pressure. And then it kind of, they are so divisive that people will maybe see them in a different light. They don't have to like the films, but I think they can maybe appreciate what they could have been. I think that's that's the way I'd like to see them. Because, you know, at the end of the day, art is subjective. You know, we we love films, we hate films, you know, and we're all different. So um, I think having them in there adds, like, you know, like I say, a structure to basically what, like people like Glenn Morgan, who went in there with the best of intentions and just got, completely shafted for for lack of a better term in the in what they wanted to do um you know april wolf and sophia takal you know were given this you know this stupidly tight schedule to work to which doesn't seem possible and then had to flip their story you know in about three weeks i think it was and then basically were on set in new zealand of all places that you know not in america they were in new zealand so you know foreign country never been there before you know and you know and then obviously problems with the cast and it's just, yeah, we delve into that. And uh, 
I just found that kind of stuff, that was kind of like, you know, that was kind of like putting in my hands. It was really nice that people were very open to talk about it because because 2019 was so fresh when we were talking to these people um, the year after. Some people were a bit apprehensive, but then others were really open towards it. Like we, we spoke to April Wolf and she, she goes and her, her interview is actually one of the best interviews in the entire book for me because she tells us where the story comes from. And it comes from a very dark place, which, you know, I, I won't disclose here, but you can read about it in the book. And, and she really came at the project. I'd approached Sophia and I'd approached April. Uh, Sophia was quite stung from the project and she'd obviously, she'd received a lot of, and so in April as well for, the, for this matter, and received a lot of online abuse, which, you know, is something that I don't condone personally. When I watched the film the first time, I didn't like it. I've watched it since and I, I found some merits in the film. But at the same time, I, when I was talking to April, you separate yourself from that. You talk and talk about the film you talk about the ideas you don't you don't say oh I, I really hated your film you know it's like you can't you don't go at things like that it's just a professional and yeah her interview is is fascinating she puts it all on the table and, and it's quite a bold move because obviously she's still working in the industry and, and you, you don't know if that could could scold her down the line with with the way that hollywood seems to work you know um, because there's people like glenn morgan who would have loved to have talked to but he's so divorced from the project because of what happened that he doesn't want to talk about it. And, and I, I can kind of understand him in a, in a way, but it just would have been great to talk to him, you know. And then we, um, there's a few people that we, we've kind of given the offer to that we've said, you know, if you want to talk down the line, you know, Olivia Hussey, you know, the, the offer is still there. People like Dean Friss, who is in the remake as Agnes, um, you know, and obviously Glenn Morgan and James Wong, you know, if they want to talk in the future, then, you know, the door is always open for me. And, and and the same goes for any of the uh, the original cast because as as we know you know well no one's getting any younger are they and it's nearly a fifty year old film so that was the heartbreaking thing about John Saxon is we you know we chased him for the best part of two years probably not knowing that he was probably quite ill at the time or you know or is you know and then he passed away and it was just, it was it was just a bit it's sad anyway because he's such an icon cinema never mind the um, it just would have been great to talk to him there's definitely enough material if we have went back for a second printing there's enough there and I, I would personally be asking Bert if I could have some of some copies of his production schedules from that time I would that, that to me is kind of like a holy grail which we which we just literally just asking for prints for and put them in into a second printed of, of the book so you guys could see the exact things that were being shot on a certain day as you know as filmmakers doing stuff you know so you you know oh I don't know when was the OI sequence filmed exactly, you know that specific date and stuff. I know it sounds really kind of weird and stuff, but you know for people who love these things and films, it's like you know it's like wow that's you know if it was filmed on I don't know July the twenty seventh, you know I can guarantee people would start watching that film and syncing it up to that point on July the twenty seventh or something just so you'd have that shot at exactly the time it was shot 50 odd years ago and so forth. So, cause I'd do it, <laughs> you know, I just think that kind of information, you know, it, it's, it's not for everybody. Don't get me wrong. But then the beauty of these kind of books and projects is for the people who do want to know about that stuff. It's there then it's, it's there forever and we haven't lost it. It hasn't been lost. It's there for us all to enjoy it. This seems like a really good COVID project because you could do these interviews via Skype and you didn't have to necessarily leave the house that often to be able to work very diligently on putting this all together. I was literally sitting here for these interviews and stuff where I am now. 
and to have Nick Mancuso on Skype do the Billy voice in front of you live, it's quite an honour <laughs> in a weird kind of way to hear him say, you know, start just randomly going off into the Billy voice and me going, oh my God, my inner nerd, my inner nerd, he's doing the Billy voice. I'm trying to look professional at the same time, but inside I'm going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It was quite cool. <laughs> That was very surreal, actually, because um, when we spoke to him, I think Nick's living in France at the moment with his wife, and um, and he was kind of like it was a very very interesting interview because he kind of he went off on so many like little tangents, but within the first two minutes, without prompt, he started doing the voice, and I was like, we need to record this, we need to record this and save this. <laughs> this is so, I'm sure I probably speak for Dave as I want to say that it genuinely sent a little chill down your spine because it was exactly it was like it was on point. How after all these years, surely your temp, you know, your voice changes as you get older and stuff. But it's like, nope, it was exactly the same. And I was like, this guy is infamous. <laughs> this guy's gonna live forever with this voice. I, I'm shocked that he doesn't do cameo or anything because he'd make he'd make a fortune on it. Doing, you know, if people vanging, you know, asked for him to do a Billy's birthday message or something, he'd be raking it in with money. Honestly, I swear to God, he would. And for the first customer, it'd probably be me. Christmas greetings from Billy. They're fantastic. Happy Christmas, you pig. <laughs> that was quite, because last night, in, we, it's very rare that it gets cinema screenings here. And last night, about 40-odd miles away in a place called Nottingham, they did a one-off screening of it at the cinemas last night. And I was like, I've got to go. I've got to, I've never seen this on the big screen. I've got to, this is like a bucket list thing. And I think they're going to try and do it again next year because poor Paul couldn't make it. But honestly, it, you could hear a pin drop for the entirety of that screening. Nobody was talking, everybody was fully engrossed in it. Even the bits like fellatio was all the jokes were being got. Especially I love that bit, the fellatio is Argent Nash and everything. But everybody got it, you know, all the, the scary bits, people jumped, the funny bits, people laughed, the chilling, scary bits, people got it. And it was just it was it was such an experience to watch it on a big screen with people who were appreciating it and stuff, you know, because you know, horror films today it's it's bang bang jump, bang bang jump. That is a pure kind of like a kettle in a sense. It builds and builds and builds, and then at the end, it just unleashes and stuff. And I, I you know, I think there's, it's it's difficult for audiences to maybe watch something that kind of slow burning maybe today. But at the same time, there are people out there who do want to get that stuff still, and they were probably all there last night because it was it was a fantastic atmosphere. It was a fantastic evening just to see it on the big screen. Whoy, it was it was good. <laughs> So tell me more about the book. When is it out and where is it available? The book is um, will be available on the 28th of January, 2022. The publisher is, is a publisher called Bear Manor Media. Basically, I think we're looking at possibly hardback, paperback, and e-formats all through their website. So uh, they've got social media, but if you just search for Bear Manor Media, it's Bear Manor as in one word, media on Google. You'll find them straight away. We did initially potentially look at a before Christmas release, but just to make sure that everything's kind of okay, you know, crossing all the, you know, the I's and the T's and whatever. We all kind of mutually agree on January because at the end of the day, once it's out, people can buy it anytime they want. And then hopefully by the time next next Christmas comes around, who knows, we may have an expanded edition, but, you know, as I've said to Dave, and it's really weird once you kind of finish a project because you almost kind of, especially a creative one, you almost have to kind of divorce yourself from it a little bit. So the way that in terms from a creative point of view, I've kind of divorced myself from Black Christmas. I can go back to it and enjoy it again now because we've kind of 
scratch that itch basically to to get this information all down on a page and it's it's more comprehensive than i ever thought it was going to be i just thought it was going to be this maybe 200 page book at best uh you know that it was just going to be about the 74 film and it's, and it's become so much more than that i mean dave has put together a full uh, critical kind of analysis of the 74 film it's something it's something that i could never write that i just haven't i, I am wired that way in terms of the from an, from an academic point of view you know Dave, dave's uh you know in terms of the education of, from film dave is, is far beyond what you know my levels of just enjoying films and analyzing them i didn't get college with film so he's put together this really comprehensive look at themes that run throughout the film and, and the way that characters interact and then really gone to town in, in the analysis of how the film was put together as well you know in terms of shots sound design production design and you know reading into themes as well like like say we alluded to obviously the abortion theme is, is a kind of a an underlying one obviously you know the kind of the loss of innocence you know you know very strange time you know and especially the fact that it's a canadian film as well you know it's a this really obscure Canadian film becomes this this beast, you know. It was just fascinating, I think, to work on, you know. And and and, and I, I I've said Dave multiple times, and it, it sounds, you know, it sounds it might sound egotistical, I don't know. But I said to him, I said, I think we've done all right here, you know. We 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 wrote something in keeping with the spirit. What it is, it's the first ever chronicle of Black Christmas that you know is. It's probably put together pieces that other people have written over the years, but also we put our slants on things and tried to come up with something that's hopefully, you know, gives people answers to maybe questions they, they've had for years. They, 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 you know, as long as people enjoy it, you know, it's great. If they, if they hate it, you know, it's it's fine too. <laughs> One of the things I'm really happy about is a lot of answers to stuff that's never really been answered before. And we've got people talking about this stuff that they might have talked a little bit about in the past, but these are quite extensive things that they've really gone into, you know, they've gone into for us thankfully, and with many thanks from us as well, you know, because there's a lot of DVD supplements out there and, and things like that, which are great in the wrong way, but everything seems scattered across different things, whereas this book kind of brings everything into one place. And, yeah, hopefully it will enhance your enjoyment of Black Christmas along with all the other things that have been said about it over the years, and you'll get to un- uncover some of Billy's secrets still that he's still got. What are you guys next? Are you doing a, a book now about the Porky series? I'm going back into filmmaking again a little bit because this kind of like I've never wrote I've never wrote a book in this like this before, and I've in, I've enjoyed it. A fantastic experience. I think I'll probably go back to it with Paul one day. For the time being, I've got some films. Uh, I've got a film coming out soon called You're My Sunshine that I'm kind of in post production on. We should be finishing it in a few days, so I need to spend a bit of time on that. And then I've some scripts I need to scripts so i'll probably be doing that for a bit next year and there's another film that we're finishing next year for next christmas called advent which is a christmas anthology i am going back into horror film making soon i can't say anything else <laughs> i'm sworn to secrecy or else i'll be uh, i'll be battered <laughs> probably hey, ironically i'd never seen it i watched a christmas story last night for the first time talking about bob clark in general i'd seen uh, porkies when i was in school all them years ago and never, never joined the dots for about 10 years, you know, before like the, the, this is like just when the internet was starting to be a thing and never joined the dots for years that he did Black Christmas as well. How can this guy who's done Porky's, this crude and wonderful teenage comedy, which I love, I, I think it's fantastic. 
so it's so crude you know it's you know you look at things like american pie and that and porky's was doing it 20 years before then you know in terms of how, how far ahead of its time it was and uh, a friend of mine has got the um, he's got a trilogy box set of porkies and he's walked it around before and it's like we've we've watched the sequels and uh, the first film was so fantastic and and i suppose maybe that's the beauty of black christmas in a way that there hasn't ever been a sequel so it's always got this kind of like it's got this little time stamp with it that you know you basically it's there even if people do go back to it it's always going to be there you know it's, it's it's like and it's like any original you know we can we can you know argue about remakes and sequels until the cows come home but you know the original is always going to be there and, and it's the same with porkies you know he's, he's created these three amazing films that are so diverse but they've all got this this kind of like this little wink of like mischievousness about them you know even with black christmas like we say with the fellatio part the whole character of barb is just, is just like you know she's she's like she's a force of nature i mean as dave said he loves the, the fellatio scene uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film is when she's getting really drunk in the day and trying to feed children booze and they're, and they're uh, you know trying to sit on santa's lap and it's like this really offbeat kind of humor that's like and this is in 1974 when it wasn't like you know you know, you could probably see yourself getting your knuckles wrapped for that, you know, maybe 10 years, 15 years later. You know, you can't do that. And, and you know, you could because it was this low budget independent film that was, you know, being done with the best intentions. But it obviously for, for Clark, it gave him a career as well. You know, it, it was, it, you know, as low key as it was, it gave a talented filmmaker a career. And, and a lot of other people too, you know, it was really nice watching A Christmas Story and noticing in the credits a lot of the same people were still involved like people like the editor stan cole you know were coming back into the fold you know from the production so obviously and we've done it as part of the book is we've done a little chapter on bob clark's career basically and the way it kind of went and what we've always found going through his careers if he if he finds he works well with somebody he always manages to work with them again and that's the you know that's the sign of like a, a bit of an auteur you know and then again just someone who gets on with his cast and we, we found that a lot, like a lot of the people that we interviewed who were on the crew and, and some of the cast talked about how he would always come back to them because he knew they could do the job. Do you know what I mean? Like there was this kind of a bit of a family unit going on throughout these films. It was quite fascinating to see that because I, I work with the same people when I'm doing films, like I work with the same production designer, same producers, stuff like that. So it's quite nice to see that we're not just doing this. We're not making our own stuff up as we go along, but actually following you know, what people like great directors like Bob Clark was doing and stuff in the film world, in the indie film world, in a sense and stuff. So it's quite interesting to see that kind of kind of family linkage going on with all these films. I've been kind of chipping away at a couple of projects whilst we were kind of putting the finishing touches to the, to the book for Black Christmas. So uh, I've just finished a first draft, actually, ironically, tonight, actually, when we've been talking uh, on a book about George the Revenge, of all things. <laughs> So that's kind of been a this weird kind of offbeat obsession with that film. I know it's terrible, but it's I find it quite fun. It was really interesting, like we were talking about earlier, about we're talking about troubled productions, and George's Revenge is a very troubled production. And it's been really fascinating because basically during the research process for Black Christmas, I managed to get a few like old newspaper clippings and uh, and started to like had a, an idea in my mind. I was like. I wonder if I can do something with this and then uh, put the pieces together and hopefully that's going to kind of come together over the next 12 months. Uh, the, the rough draft's done. I'm just kind of waiting on a couple of interviews to come back uh, for that. And then also uh, I've tentatively started uh, a book on the Maniac Cop trilogy as well. 
because there's so many people who are involved in, in them films, the amount of interviews for that already is is mind-boggling. You know, it's almost double what there was for Jaws because Jaws is it's tricky because it's again it's 1987. It's weird because we managed to get so many people to talk about Black Christmas, which was released in 1974. And when I tried to get a lot of the people from behind the scenes of 1987's Jaws: The Revenge, a lot of the people have passed away. And it's you know it's not it's a a younger film essentially. It's but obviously it must have had a lot of old, older heads on it in the sense. Uh, which is, it's a shame, but, you know, um, it's it's very interesting. It's been very interesting to look at it with a, an analytical eye, you know, especially going from a, a film so revered as Black Christmas to one that's, you know, probably, you know, across the board quite universally hated. And they're trying to give it a voice. I mean, there's been books about Jaws, there's been books about Jaws 2. It was a lot easier to find information about Revenge, and I actually prefer Revenge to Jaws 3D, so it kind of felt like a natural fit. And it was, I found the writing process quite easy, and it's been the same with the Maniac Cop series. That and I, I know that me and Dave will will we'll collaborate again in the future. We're just kind of we've been toying with different ideas. You know, it's just a Black Christmas was it was it was a good opportunity to as well as well from a you know it's from a commercial point of view. It's good to um, look at a gap in the market essentially, um, and and not exploit it. But, you know, we like to feel that you know there are companions for Halloween. There's companions for Elm Street, Friday the Thirteenth, and now people have got a companion for Black Christmas. So that's kind of hopefully what we have we have given people and then you know if, if they you know if someone ever wants to write a book in the future that's you know they managed to get other interviews than us then they might use us as a reference point i don't know you know it's, it's like say once it's released it's out there isn't it you know we, we're just gonna you know ride the, the wave of praise and criticism <laughs> dave and paul thank you so much for your time this has been fantastic 15 years ago on Christmas Eve, his family became his victims. What have you done? Now, all roads and airports are officially closed. This one is not going to let up. A group of college friends. That sucks. Everyone should be home for Christmas are about to discover... Lauren, we're opening up presents. Why don't you open the present we got you? Their house... I got it. ...is his home. All is calm. All is bright. Who is in my house tonight? Don't you have lots of toys to deliver to good little boys and girls? You really shouldn't provoke somebody like that. And on December 25th... You're definitely getting punked. All he wants for Christmas is Megan in her room. Is a new family he can treat like his very own.
All right, we are back and we are talking about Black Christmas. And Mark, you mentioned before the break the whole idea of a sequel to this. Yeah, we've gotten, well, we've gotten a couple fan films that are sequels, but more than that, we've had remakes of Black Christmas. First and foremost, the 2006 Glenn Morgan remake, which ironically, Glenn Morgan also was behind the uh, remake of Willard and behind Final Destination 3, which I was talking about all the creative kills that you get in the Final Destination movies. And the 2006 Black Christmas kind of goes along those lines. It's got that Rob Zombie, let's devote all this time to the backstory, and it does nothing but deflate the atmosphere of the film to not know who this person is to barely see Billy at any point in the original. You see his legs at one point, you see the the famous shot of the eye a couple of times and that's it. And to get this whole story of his childhood and his liver disease and being yellow and the baby, the incest storyline and it turns into a boy in the walls story as well. I don't dislike that remake. I kind of give it credit for being really way out there and really stylized. It's It's got a lot more style than I think it, it needs a lot of times. But that aspect of the film, I do not like. I don't want all the backstory. And I do blame Rob Zombie for that. And it's just uninteresting to me. A cipher is much more interesting. Of course, I'm reminded of uh, the yellow bastard from Sin City as we see Billy. The very first time we see Billy, I'm like, is he yellow? What the hell's going on? (laughs) I kind of like the stuff in the insane asylum and that his room is decorated with Christmas lights and that it gives a little present to one of the guards that says, you know, I'll be home for Christmas. By that time, we've already had one death. So as soon as he escapes, I'm like, okay, well, there's obviously two killers. So when there's a twist, I guess it's supposed to be a twist and Agnes is out there as well. I'm like, yeah, okay. The only thing that surprised me is that, and this was very much a a cheat. They go from that kind of kooky girl with the glasses. They cut from her to the past. And then I want to say they come back to her. So it's like, okay, that's obviously her memories, but it's not. It's just that they cut away and they cut back. I'm like, okay, you're cheating, but whatever. And I want to say that was around the time that we learned that Agnes only had one eye. So I'm like, well, she's got two eyes here. So definitely this isn't adding up. But yeah, and then all the eye trauma. I mean, this is like a, a Fulci film going on here with all of the eyeballs being removed and the baby doll eyes and all this kind of stuff. I didn't hate it, but it. I think they could have called it something other than Black Christmas and been okay with it. I was very confused. I, I watched it. I might have even watched it before I watched the original, but it's been a long time. So this was only the second time I had seen it. And I was extremely confused at the beginning. And I thought, are we going to, are we operating on two different timelines here? And it's going to merge at some point. Cause like you mentioned, we have the kill of the Claire character in this one. And I think she's the only one with a name from the original. I could be mistaken though. And 
Oh, other than Mrs. Mack, I'm assuming that Andrea Martin is Mrs. Mack again. Yes, she is. But then we're going back to the asylum. So he hasn't escaped yet. And I thought, what's going on? So obviously I didn't remember that part of the film from the first time I watched it. And I didn't honestly remember that Agnes was the main killer in this. I thought the same thing. This weird girl is going to be Agnes grown up. And no, because she gets her head chopped off. So that was wrong. And then I thought, okay, yeah, now I get it. There's two of them. Agnes is his daughter from this incestuous relationship with his mom. (sighs) Okay. I mean, we talked about implied violence in the first movie. We talked about not really knowing what's going on with Billy and his life, you know, that there's implied incest. There's no implication. This is full out. This is mom comes over to little Billy, little yellow Billy, and just boom, takes off all their clothes. All right, Billy, let's do it. And it's like, holy shit. Did you have to go there? Like, yes, they went there in the first one, but did you have to go there so much in this one? Like, again, implication is much more powerful to me than this one where I'm almost laughing at how out there that they had to put things. It felt like this was for the people in the back row who just weren't going to pick up on any of these other things. There's no subtlety. And it's that one-upmanship, like you mentioned, the Final Destination films and all that. And we are so beholden to that these days in horror films where you have to have the inventive kill. I mean, look at the Halloween, the new Halloween movies. It's the same kind of thing. Halloween, like Black Christmas, was virtually bloodless. You see a couple of the killings, but there's two strangulations and there is some knife insertion, but it's, again, it's very quick mostly bloodless and that's not the point. And I think John Carpenter definitely took a page from this and was apparently a fan of black Christmas. And nowadays it's like, that's what people go to see and we have to make them creative. And how do you you just have to keep ratcheting it up? And it's a detriment, I think to this film loses all subtlety and so much so that the characters in this, again, unlike the characters in the original, are so one-dimensional that I couldn't parse out who who am I supposed to think is the final girl here. I don't mind a switch up like, oh, I thought it was going to be her and now she's dead. It's like, like Maitland, like you mentioned earlier, I don't care which one of these girls dies. I want Mary Elizabeth Winstead to survive because I'm a Mew Stan, but I, I couldn't remember like who's going to be the final girl. Are we going to have a final girl? We usually do. Didn't didn't care. Didn't matter. And the one that it ends up being was like one of the least interesting characters in the film. Yeah, I thought for sure. Like, okay, you know, is it going to be? Because in the first movie, you've got Olivia Hussey and you've got Margot Kidder. And I know Hussey was somebody before Black Christmas, so she's a known quantity. I want to say that Margot Kidder was as well. I want to say Sisters was right around the same time, and I'm not sure what Kidder did necessarily before that to put her on the map. Watching it with 2021 eyes, I was like, okay, well, these two are going to have to survive. So when Margot Kidder ends up biting it, I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. Well, you know, we're, we're for sure 
placing all of our bets now on Hussey. So when it came to this movie, I was like, okay, well, I know Lacey Chabert. I know Mary Elizabeth Winstead and I know Michelle Trachtenberg. Which one of them is going to survive? Well, joke's on you, Mike. So <laughs> it's like, all right, great. Thanks a lot. It's my privilege to teach you this semester. Enjoy your winter breaks and Merry Christmas. Sup, ladies? Excited for tonight? It is our last day of our last fall semester of college ever. Can you take a photo of all of us? Of course. Where's Helena? She was pieing back a sodas earlier, but she looked really good. Cheese. We shouldn't have let her go back by herself. She's fine. Come on, live a little. Helena hasn't gotten home yet. If I were missing, I'd want you to unleash the bloodhounds and track me down. She was at DKO last night. Still creating problems, huh, right? Hello? Hello? I'm worried that something bad happened. It's winter break. Could just be a delay of some sort. Snow. My friend is missing. Nine times out of ten, the girl's just with a boyfriend. I will bring you to your knees. There's someone in the house. What the? This can't be real. has 200 years of history. Run! Many sacrifices have been made to keep our traditions alive. You're all insane. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of running. Go, 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 go! Ho, 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 bitch. You mess with the wrong sisters. And then there was the 2019 movie, which I watched for the first time today, which, again, doesn't necessarily need to be called Black Christmas. There are some interesting nods. There's a bag over the head at one point. There's a cat. But there's not a whole lot more. I don't even think there's uh, rather than phone calls, it's more like manic uh, DMs, but they're not from Billy. There is no Billy in this film unless... The rapist, I don't, I don't think his name Brian, it's not Billy. So I don't know why they felt the need to call this one Black Christmas. I think that they could have called the things that were similar. They could have called them homages, done the Tarantino on it because there is not that much similar between this film and 1974 or even 2006. It's that most cynical of reasons. They got the license for the name and. I vaguely remember when this happened, I heard about there was going to be another remake. And I thought, well, that's odd because, I mean, did the 2006 one really do that well? And 
it turned around quickly. Like that, it was months. It was much shorter than most modern films get turned around. It was the Weinstein fallout where Dimension Film or whoever held the the rights at that point they were going to be dissolved and Blumhouse snatched up the rights to Black Christmas. Got this, and at the time he had made some insensitive comments about female directors, and uh, you know it was this whole thing. So approached this female director to take on this film. You can do whatever you want. There's no script. You write it and maybe kind of connect it loosely. So they didn't, you know, go along the original storyline, which can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. I, I, I'm i trying to think of an example of a film that is, is a reboot or a requel or whatever you want to call it, where it, it kind of works as not connected or not the same beat by beat story, but this is so removed. I'm thinking, yeah, why call it black Christmas? I was thinking, oh, they had a script and it was too similar, but they didn't even have the script. They just had the name and the rights. And the only thing you get, like you said, are the cat. And in all three films, we have a glass unicorn. And that's like the time, the one connection for all three, at least. And multiple nods throughout, I think with, with maybe a line here or a line there. And, I, I tried to catch as many of them as I could, but, and they're superficial nods. Like you said, there's no Billy and it's DMs through Yip Yap. I thought they were getting texts. I'm, I'm so out of it. My wife asked what a DM was just the other day. And I was just like, well, Dungeon Master. Yeah. They started saying DMs and I'm like, oh, I thought you were getting text messages. They looked like texts. I just have to put this out there for all filmmakers. If you're going to put text messages or DMs or anything where you have to read it on screen, please make it a lot easier to read. Because even on my TV, which is a fair size, I'm not reading any of these things. I can barely make out what's going on. It's like you got a lot more room. Just bring, bring that phone closer yeah, to there was a lot the screen. of screen. And quick. They were quick. I'm like, I kind of like it. It's a little bit intrusive, but I sort of like it when they just show up on the screen as the text. I'm fine with that. That's good. Yeah, it makes it easier to read, and and we're all so accustomed to staring at our phones all day anyway. It's it it doesn't break the fourth wall. I think maybe as as they might think it does, but yeah, it's an interesting. It is an interesting thing, and I was surprised that. And I think this is in the book, the new book that we read. And it's not an interview with the director, but that she's not a big horror fan. And I'm surprised by that because the only things I've seen from her prior to this are horror films. So I was like, oh, well, oh, okay, well, you've done at least three films now that are horror related. Uh, maybe one of them is more of a psychological persona-esque kind of thing. But I mean, to me, that's, I consider that horror. I'm thinking, okay, so we, we pick someone to direct this who's admits to not being a huge fan of horror, give them carte blanche on the script, but then they were hamstrung throughout the production where they couldn't do a lot of the set pieces that they wanted to do. And then at some point they made the decision to cut down the violence to make it PG 13 so that young girls who were the target audience could go see it. 
And all those things, I think, combined just make it not a total disaster, but really castrate the film. It has no impact. And you can see pretty clearly where the edits are made to the violence that you assume was there. And we talk about how it's nice that the original is virtually bloodless and really the only violent scene is the death of Var- of Barb, but we don't see penetration. We just kind of see her thrashing around and, and the franticness of Billy. But this, you don't see anything. It's hard to tell what's killed the people that are dying. Is Did this guy get shot in the head? Because I don't, I have no indication of an arrow going through this person's head. I have no indication of this woman being stabbed in the eye or whatever it is that was originally there. They've cut it so much that it's completely gone. I don't even get an implication of how they died. And that to me was, was uh, went against the power of the film. I think I might've liked it a little bit more than you. I was reminded while I was watching it, a lot of promising young woman, that whole idea of and the empowerment and this girl that had been raped before though with promising young woman, it's the girl's friend, even though you think it might be the girl, uh, the main character for a while or woman, the very promising young woman. I was a little surprised that they went a supernatural way in black Christmas, 2019, and it really felt like that ending, I think, to your point, it felt very rushed. It felt like it came on very quickly and then just felt like it got really rushed really fast throughout the last bit. And here I was just like, all right, yeah, cool, girl power, and let's attack all these frat guys and just murder these a-holes. But it just felt so fast. I really wanted more of that. I was like, okay, this is a good time for catharsis. Nope. Didn't get that. I liked some of the ideas. I liked Carrie Elwes in this. I always like Imogene Poots in whatever I've seen her in. I can see why people liked it. And I, like I said, I think I might have liked it a little bit more than you did. But I still, it's not one of those where I'm going to go back to it anytime soon. I enjoyed the message of it. I just think it, some of the lines were too on the nose. We get, this was around the Kavanaugh thing and Brock Turner and I'm all for that empowerment but the boyfriend of one of the characters who's who's a you know a, a an ally through most of the film at some point he starts kind of getting affected by this thing that's going on and uh, you know has some stereotypical toxic ma- male lines and at one point he's like I like beer and it's like okay um, there's a few other examples where he he tells his girlfriend, you know, you're being hysterical. All those lines that, that men throw at women when they're expressing these things and, and trying to take that agency away from them. So I get it, but some of the lines were just so on the nose. I just kind of rolled my eyes a little bit. My daughter asked about the sequels, and I said, well, I don't think we'll watch the 2006 one. But I said the 2019 one it's interesting. It's very different from this. It's a different story basically. And it's PG 13. So, I mean, we can watch it if you want. So I'd be curious to see how, how she sees it. So apparently there was, there have been two fan films about this. One of them I've not been able to find, which is called black Christmas. The night Billy came home. That's from 2016. 
And there is another one called It's Me, Billy, a Black Christmas fan film. I didn't get a chance to watch that, but I think you did, Mark. I did, and I liked where it was going at the beginning. And if I remember correctly, it's the the main girl in this is supposed to be Jess's granddaughter. And so in this universe, Jess survived. And I guess she had the baby, or this might be a different baby. Right. No, I, and I think that's the implication is that she had the baby. I'd have to watch it again. Now, you, now you're making me question that. Um, or maybe she didn't, and that was a source of problems later. I think it might be a different one, and that's uh, there was there's a strained relationship I think between this girl's mom and and the grandma who's supposed to be Jess, and that might be why the grandmother has died and and willed the house to this girl, so she's going there with her friends to check out the house, I guess, and maybe put it on the market or something like that, and they end up spending the night there, and oh, Billy's still there in the house. Billy's got to be so old by this. He is. He is. It's, it's again, it's, it's kind of funny. He's got this really long hair and is really old and there's phone calls and so on and so on. And I enjoyed where I was going at the beginning. Um, It left me a little cold by the end. They try to replicate the phone calls and it, it doesn't quite work as well. You have the multiple voices, but I think that this gives a lot of credit to whoever mixed then and edited those calls because it just kind of misses the mark a little bit. And then there's a twist at the end, which since you haven't watched it, I won't spoil. And I may be relating the whole thing incorrectly. So if, if anybody that's listening, you know, wants to correct that stuff, they can, they can write to you about it. Yeah. They'll slide into my DMs. You know, the one thing that we didn't really mention when it comes to Black Christmas is the second word in the title. And just that I'm not sure how many Christmas horror films we had to that point, but now it's ridiculous. I mean, Silent Night, Deadly Night, that's a whole big franchise. I mean, there have been so many films, horror films specifically set at Christmas And they've all had a little bit of, well, the early ones had controversy around them. I don't know if Black Christmas had that much controversy, though I know that they changed the name of it when they were going to, what, air it on TV, and then they ended up not airing it anyway because of the Bundy murders. But yeah, I always found it interesting like how people would get so offended by a Christmas movie that is also a horror film. The only Christmas horror movie that I can think of that predates this is the one with Mary Warnoff. Maybe it's Silent Night, Bloody Night. All of the Christmas movies use some variation of the Silent Night, blank night. So it gets confusing, but it's sort of similar. There are phone calls in that as well. There are a bunch of the Warhol factory people in the film. John Carradine is in it. And it's kind of interesting. I think most of the prints out there are really, really bad. You can watch it just about anywhere. But it has a little similar kind of creepy vibe to it and is pretty pretty interesting. And, and the, that it re- has phone calls in it as well, threatening phone calls, is, is a curiosity, I think. 
Yeah, I see that Candy Darling's in there as well as Mary Warnoff. And yeah, the IMDb says, a man inherits a mansion which was once a mental home. He visits the place and begins to investigate some crimes that happened in old times, scaring the people in the region. The creepy mansion phone calls. Okay, that's interesting. I love the little anecdote that when Black Christmas came to the States first, they changed it to Silent Night, Evil Night, so that people wouldn't mistake it for a black exploitation film. <laughs> I mean, that'd be a great movie. Why? I don't know why there isn't a black Christmas black black exploitation film. That would be great. That sounds pretty good to me. I'd watch it. On my episode, I relate that I had read the story about Bob Clark and John Carpenter talking about black Christmas and how John Carpenter asked if he would ever do a sequel and, Bob Clark was both against sequels and at that point already out of the horror game. But if I were to do one, I would do this, have Billy institutionalized, break out, come back, start terrorizing again. But this time it takes place on Halloween. And I called bullshit on that story because I could never figure out the source. And I just always kept taking me back to a bloody disgusting article online. And I'm like, well, is this on a commentary somewhere? I've, I've watched Halloween with commentaries. I've watched all the documentaries on Halloween. What's this from my Blu-ray that I had doesn't have that audio commentary because I would have found out that it's a Bob Clark story. So I had always heard that Erwin Yablon's, had given Clark the title of Halloween and said to place it during that time of year. So having listened to your fade to black episode, though, it seems like Erwin Yablons likes to take credit for a lot of stuff. So whether I'm not saying he didn't, it could be two people have the same idea. So, but I was wrong. According to Bob Clark himself, John Carpenter, and he had this conversation at some point. I'm glad you're big enough to admit it. I told people if they know where, where what about the story to let me know, and you know, I get so much response from my my own show that it's it's over. I couldn't I couldn't uh, find it all from from all the responses. Oh, because it was overwhelming. Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. I do love the whole idea of of holiday horror movies. You know, your Christmas, your Thanksgiving, your Easter, April Fool's Day. It gives a nice little. Something that you can tack plot points onto or, or have a gag, a sight gag, or a, or even a kill. New Year's Evil. There, I mean, there's a ton. And they're sometimes a lot of fun, sometimes a chore to get through, and sometimes they're completely unrelated to the holiday that, they're, that they've tacked onto the title. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Join us for the fantastic adventures of Flash Gordon. Flash uses football to fight his enemy, Ming the Merciless. Clytus, are your men on the right vitamins? Will Flash's strategy prove successful? Will he survive? Find out now at a theater near you. Music by Queen. Rated PG. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Flash Gordon. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Mark and Maitland. So, Maitland, what is happening with you, ma'am? Well, I am putting together a Substack platform that is my introduction to gay adult novels of the 70s. 
And I invite everybody to please come and take a look at it starting in January. I am so old. I don't know what a Substack platform is. Is that you like Yip Yap? It's like Substack. It's a subscription newsletter thing where uh, you can look at material produced by writers like me on a regular basis. And Mark, what's going on with you, sir? Well, if anybody in your audience isn't aware that we just did a Alan Ormsby, Bob Clark series over on my show, Wake Up Heavy, uh, I want to make them aware of that. We talked about Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, Deranged, and Death Dream with you as a co-host on all three and with a third co-host, different co-hosts for each one. So Children had Heather Drain. Deranged had Chris Stashu and Death Dream had Sam Deegan. Those are all available. And I also have the Simon Fitzjohn interview that runs through each of those episodes. I now have it up as its own uh, track. You can listen to that whole thing all the way through. And coming up, I believe I'll be talking to Anthony King again, the host of the cult movies podcast. And we're going to be doing an episode on rolling thunder. That'll probably be out sometime around the same time as this episode. Well, thank you so much folks for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening to inquire about advertising on the projection booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth and Billy take over the world.
with just 18. You want there, but you can hear her scream. 